If anybody takes anything away, turn your fucking radio off scan. Make sure you take care of your guys. Make sure you take care of their families and have a plan, not just the bullshit plan that we write down on a piece of paper. If you die, who's going to call your wife? But the plan that if you actually get hurt, if something actually happens, who's making those phone calls? Who's showing up at the house? Excellence is a rarity, but you are not alone. Talk and shop with Outlier Firefighters. What's up, everyone? Episode 23, Talk and Shop with Outlier Firefighters. I am Alex Tanner. I'm here with Todd Passaggio. And uh, welcome to another episode, Todd. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. Uh, excited to talk about a bunch of stuff. And uh, if you guys are ready, we're going to roll right into stuff. Remember, you can ask questions all you want in the chat. Love pulling stuff from people. Uh, so, you know, let her rip. Right, Eric Sullivan's already in here saying what? Oh no, Hopefully, we're not muted, right? Don't throw me off like that. I, I really built myself up to really throw an, an intro here. <laughs> I think we're fine. Well, I can hear you. Well, that's all that matters. We'll figure it out. Maybe somebody will send in on the chat to tell us they can hear us, or <laughs> maybe they can't hear us. So, Todd, like I always start, I like to get a background of where people come from. That way there's some context behind your experience as a fireman, right? So what was your first exposure to the fire service? So when I was growing up, I didn't want to be a fireman. I, I shouldn't say I didn't want to be a fireman. I just had no interest in it. Nothing. I didn't know anything about it. My dad was a county cop for 25 years. And so all growing up, that's all I saw was the police world. And we lived in the county that he worked in. So cops were at our house all the time. It was on the reg. We were having coffee and donuts. I mean, it, it, the stereotypical coffee and donuts with a cop, we did it every day. We lived it. And he worked days, he worked afternoons, and he worked nights. And up until my junior year of high school, I was homeschooled. And so I spent every day with my dad. And when he worked the midnight shift, we played a game of cards every night before he went into work. So I had no exposure to the firehouse. My exposure was all to the police world. I got picked up from friend's house in the back of the squad car. I washed the squad car in the driveway. I helped build the radio council. I checked the lights. I did all that on the squad car. So my entire life, all I wanted to be was a cop. And I wanted to be a canine cop, which segues into kind of where I'm at now, right? So everything kind of falls into play. Yeah. And it was, it was uh, when I was a junior in high school, I had to go to high school. My dad retired and my mom went back to work and I said, it's time for you to go to school and put your big boy pants on. It's time for you to go to school. So I did. And when I got into school, I told everybody, I'm going to, I'm going to be a cop. You know, I'm going to see all you guys one day on the streets, but I'm going to be a cop. And my dad said to me, God, whatever you do, don't be a cop. And I said, well, what, what else am I going to do? I'll be a garbage man. He said, no, go be a fireman. Trust me. You want to be a fireman. I said, I don't know the first thing about fire department, anything. So 18 years old, when I graduated from high school, he came to me and he said, the Woodstock Fire Department is having a test. Take a written test, do a physical agility. They're hiring part-time firemen. You don't need anything. Just go give it a shot and see what happens. And so I walked in the front door of the Woodstock Fire Department in the summer of 01, and I didn't know shit about the firehouse. I knew what a ladder truck was and an engine was and an ambulance, your basic knowledge. And I sat down to take the test and I thought, Jesus, this is the easiest test I've ever taken. It was common knowledge questions. And I'm not that smart. And so I took the test and I did the physical agility, which at that time I was in, I was 18 years old. I was in great shape. And uh, 
I took the test and two or three days later, I got a phone call that said, hey kid, uh, you passed, you, you got the job. And I turned to my dad and I said, well, I guess I'm gonna go be a fireman now for a little bit and then we'll kind of see what happens. And at that time, they put you through the academy and they put you through schooling and EMT school. And, and it, it clicked when I started going to school that, hey, this is pretty cool shit. And started hearing the stories from the guys. And I'll tell you that the stories you heard at the breakfast table over coffee and donuts with the, with the cops was much different than the stories you heard at the breakfast table over coffee and donuts with the firemen. And the cop stories were, oh, we went to so-and-so's house because their sister was pulling their hair or it was a domestic or what all the bullshit that they deal with on a daily basis. And at the firehouse, it was, oh, we had this rollover last night. We cut this person out of a car and went to this house fire. And we did all these things that weren't domestics and weren't hair pulls and spit in the face. And, and I thought, hey, this dad might have been onto something. So my exposure literally came the day I walked into the firehouse. And I'll, I'll never forget one of the first classes I sat in. They were talking about Mavis. And I, I thought it was Mavis, M-A-V-A-S for a long time. And I'm like, what the hell are they talking about? And I went back and I looked it up. I'm like, oh, mutual aid black time system. That makes sense. Okay. That's literally, I didn't know anything about it. So my introduction to fire was my introduction to fire right, right out of the gate. So I, I'm not the kid who grew up in the firehouse. I'm the kid who grew up in the back of a squad car in the literal sense of I got to clean the squad car in the driveway. So. Uh, that was that was my first exposure. That's cool. That's that's really cool. I mean, I guess you were still exposed to some public safety, but yeah, I, I mean, it's a different if it's a different animal, right? I mean, but and you know, the stories is what captivates you, right? It's always the stories, whether they're police stories or they're stories from the fire department. The stories are, are what gets you, and that's what and that's what draws you in. Whether you're a cop or you're a fireman or you work at the ER or whatever the case may be, whatever you're drawn to. It's the stories. It's the stories of driving 90 miles an hour with lights and sirens on trying to catch a bad guy. It's the house fire that, you know, you got to get to. It's the rollover accident with people trapped inside. It's the stories that, as a kid, captivate you. And the reason I wanted to be a canine officer was I've had a love for dogs my entire life. And I thought, well, if I can be a cop and have a dog, it's the best of both worlds, right? So. Like I said, it kind of segued into my career now. It's, I still have the best of both worlds. But that was that was literally my introduction. It was I, the day I walked in the door. I, I, and God bless, God bless the Woodstock Fire Department for putting up with me. That's great. <laughs> I love what you're saying about stories too, right? Like no, nobody gets excited talking about TPS reports, you know? No, no kid's going to be like, I'm going to go work in an office. Right. And you know I you think to yourself, look, does a garbage man come home from work and be like, oh, you should have seen the couch that I picked up today. I can't imagine that his kid's sitting on the edge of his seat with his popcorn in one hand and his beer in the other going, Jesus, Dad, what color was the couch, you know? So, uh, yeah, and I and I dove into it with two feet, too. I, I went, I started going to school full time. And so I worked during the day. I worked construction right out of high school and I worked the firehouse on the weekends. And I went to school every night and had had Saturday Academy class up at MCC, you know, learning from guys that were that were teaching from all over the place. They weren't just Woodstock firemen; they were firemen from Skokie and Addison and and Glenview and you know everywhere in between. And those were the guys that were that were teaching everything. So, um, like I said, when I started, I jumped in both feet. And my dad told me, he said, "If you get straight A's, I'll help you pay for your college." And the fire department was paying for the fire stuff, and so all the extra bullshit you got to do English and math and, and all that. 
um, you know, the old man helped me pick up pick up the tab on that as long as I got good grades. So it it worked, and you could tell Vitaly that yes, at one point I was in good shape. Yeah, I, can I was going to say. There's always one, right? There's always one in the. Well, you got to get someone chirping, otherwise it's just it's a boring yeah, show at that point, right? That's right. Yep. <laughs> so Mike, so, yeah. He was at some point in great shape, so I guess that's his side of the story. I had to know, just since Mike brought that up, when I was homeschooled, we had a track team. And had I known Mike was going to pop that up, I would have went downstairs. I have a plaque downstairs because I was the most improved runner on the homeschooled tortoise track team. And I have a plaque in my basement. I should text my kid and have him go get it so I can show you guys. But I was the most improved runner. So There you go, it's Mike. It's a true story. Yep. <laughs> and so, so really from there – you know, I got on Woodstock and I was on a couple years. And um, when I turned 18, I rented a house with a couple guys, a buddy from high school and another guy that got hired on Woodstock with me. We were 18 years old and we had the party house. And everybody came to our house and it was right on the main drag in Woodstock. So if there was a call, they usually took the main drag. We'd go stand at the road with our bottle of High Life and wave as they went by for calls. And we got to know everybody because our house was the fun house to go to. And I put off paramedic school for a long time because I wasn't ready. I, I wanted to party and I wanted to hang out and and I bought my first house when I was twenty one and I was, you know, one of my the only guys in my group of friends that did that. And like I said, it was a lot of it was it was party time for me. And uh I put paramedic school off till I was twenty three or twenty four. And finally I said, All right, I'm gonna go. And I went, and it was a shit show, but I made it through. And you know what they call the guy that got a 70 on the state test? You know, they call him Todd. And well, they call um, him Alex, too. So. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. I, I knew I couldn't be the only one. But when I was in paramedic school, you know, it was all ride time, and you had to have a ridiculous amount of hours. You had to have, you know, thousands of hours of ride time. And working in Woodstock, the hospital was in Woodstock. So we'd pick a patient up, and from the time of dispatch to the time at the hospital, I was getting, you know, 10, 12, 15 minutes of ride time. And so I'm turning in books of ride time, and I'm still not getting my ride time. So a buddy of mine that I met in the academy said, hey, I work on Wonder Lake. Why don't you come out here and get on Wonder Lake? You'll get your ride time. So I sold my house, moved to Wonder Lake. I bought a house in Wonder Lake, got on the Wonder Lake Fire Department because you had to live in town at the time to be on the department. And you got credit for your ride time from the time the call went off till you cleared the hospital well at night the call went off you know it was five minutes to get to the station then you'd wait for everybody else you'd go on a call you didn't get to the call for you know 12 15 minutes or whatever the hell it was and then on scene time and transport time we went to McHenry or Woodstock so it was a 10 20 minute transport time all of a sudden three four runs you're getting all your ride time and so in order to get my ride time I went out there so I could get ride time from both the uh both the two departments while i was on wonder lake i met a guy and he said why don't you get when you get your paramedic license why don't you come work for psi and i said eh, i don't i don't really think i'm gonna do that you know i i think i'm just gonna test and as you know when i tested i took 43 tests and it, you know it was consortium so on a saturday you test for eight or ten or twelve departments and, and i'll never forget i used to test with a guy from moringa we go to every test together and i took bartlett's test and I, when I was done, I handed it in. The guy said to me that I think it was the chief at the time. Said, "Do you have to go to the bathroom?" And I said, "No, I'm done with my test." And he said, "Oh, pretty cocky, are you?" And I said, "No, but I've taken this test for the last six weeks in a row, 
I get, I'll get a 98 on it. I got one wrong. I just don't know which one it is, and it's not worth my time to figure it out. So I took, I, I finished that IO Solutions in 26 minutes and handed it in. I got a 98, and at the interview, he goes, I remember you. And I said, yeah, I, I probably won't get a job here, but I'm glad you remember me. I'm glad I left a lasting impression. But you were taking the same test yeah. every weekend, right? Yeah. So um, I ended up getting on PSI out in West Chicago for, right after I got my paramedic license. And you know, that was a wild ride because I was very used to the way we did things in Woodstock and, and Wonder Lake, which was the McHenry County way. And when you, I didn't even know West Chicago existed until I went out there PSI and it was much different out there. And that's when it started opening my eyes that there's a world outside of your comfort zone, really. Somebody had to give me a little nudge, give me a little push, swift kick in the ass to get me going. And I'll tell you what, it's probably one of the best decisions I ever made because I never looked back after that. And I, I spent two years on the PSI contract out there and took the test. And actually the guy that I got hired with um, was on the ambulance with me. And we got hired together in July of 09, July 1st of 09. And we both came off the contract together. So I, I worked for PSI for two years and then I got hired uh, full-time in West Chicago. And it's been a smooth ride ever since. And I shouldn't say smooth, it's been a ride. Yeah. Um, and I left Wonder Lake shortly thereafter because I was balancing the three of them and I held on in Woodstock for quite a while, um, you know, your hometown department. And then it really came down to um, Paramedic Services of Illinois is what PSI stands for. Um, it really came down to training. I couldn't get the training hours in. It wasn't fair to the guys that I was working with in Woodstock. I was getting plenty of training in West Chicago, but I wasn't getting the mix of both. And so it was, I want to say it was 2012 I turned in my resignation letter in Woodstock and I'll tell you that was probably one of the hardest things I did was hand that letter and I that was that was uh, <laughs> uh I'm just reading some of the comments yeah, I'm sure everybody's going oh this is that's oh, k96 we should <laughs> probably should have put that up on the thing instead of Todd and everybody probably would have said oh I know yeah, this that... idiot is um just change the description real quick <laughs> there you go um so yeah, it really, like I said, it came down to a training thing and, and, and I ended up leaving there. And I, you know, it's funny because our lives revolve around the firehouse, whether we like it or not. I don't care if you're a career, part-time POC, work for PSI, you're the chief, you're the lieutenant, whatever. Your life revolves around the firehouse and it revolves around the firehouse for a simple fact that when, when somebody asks you to do something, what's the first thing your wife says to you? Hey, what shift is that, right? To the red, gold, or black. That's the first thing. Hey, what shift is Christmas? What so our lives revolve around the firehouse, and mine did. I mean, I I was in Woodstock a long time. I worked almost every day there. I I'll never forget the night I got my pager. I took pictures with my pager out in front of the station, and you know, I all of a sudden I went on a a, a dry spell where I wasn't drinking because I wanted to make sure I went to every call, and and you know, you ate, slept, and shit the thing, and um, so it was hard to walk away from there. I had a lot of good friends there. Where I was going with that is when you walk away from the firehouse, when you walk away from your department, at the end of the day, you're a coworker, you're an employee, you're a number. And when you walk away, you know, when you walk away from your career department, you'll probably keep three or four good friends. And the rest of them you'll see around and say hi or be friends with on Facebook or Instagram or Snapchat or TikTok or whatever platform is around then. And that, you know, that was a hard that was hard. And I knew it was coming, and I think that was what one of the hard things about leaving was, is that I knew a lot of the guys 
there was a group that I'd see, but there was a lot of guys that I probably wouldn't talk to much more anymore. And um, last night, the memory thing popped up on my phone that I had to buy more memory, and I refused to do it. And I know it's two ninety nine a month, but I'm not doing it. I'm not. I'm not buying more memory. And it said that my text messages were taking up the majority of my storage. And so I went into my phone. I started deleting text messages, and I had text messages all the way back to 2014 on my phone. And that's when I. That's when you know I. I thought about tonight, and I thought about that, and some of the guys from Woodside. That was the last time I talked to them, and some of the guys that were on those text messages from 2014 were guys that I spent every day with. And then when you leave, it leaves with you. So, like I said, I knew it was coming, and I think that's when we talk about guys retiring, we give them shit for not leaving because they don't have a plan afterwards, is when you leave the firehouse, you're done. And when those are the only weddings and funerals and baptisms and birthday parties you've gone to, when that goes away, it goes away. Yeah. So. Yeah, and I won't steal his story, but you know, my, my old man was was very much like that, and I, I I know that my mom basically was like, "You need to find a hobby <laughs> and start planning for that stuff." And uh, we've had a couple recent retirements at my organization, and uh, I know one of the guys was really into the job, ate it up. He retired probably a year after I got hired, and uh, just I, his transition from what I've gathered from guys that are closer to him has been rough because he just didn't know what to do next. And uh, I think everybody kind of, and I I appreciate you sharing your hometown department, the one that you started at. A lot of people deal with that, myself included, right? Where, where your heart's kind of still there because it meant something to you and it still means something to you, but there's a point where you can't be there anymore. And that's a hard decision. So thank you for sharing that. I I totally. Yeah. And you know, um, when they have a significant call, you know, I, I still know a lot of the guys there. I'll shoot the battalion chief a text and say, hey, I don't know who was on that call last night, but you know, I saw two guys, they just had a house explosion. Two guys went to the hospital. Hey, are the guys okay? Maybe I don't know them anymore, but you still have that tie back to the department. I went to their golf outing. You know, I, I, I still support them, obviously, and I still have good friends there. And some of them were in my wedding, and some of them will be lifelong friends. And, um, you know, no matter where we go in our careers, uh, but you still, you know, you hear of a fire, you hear somebody get hurt or, you know, you hear them make a good rescue or a grab or whatever. And, and you shoot a text going, hey, I'm not sure. I know you're on last night. I know you're on that shift. Hope you guys are good. You know, if you need anything, reach out. And um, obviously, as we'll get to in, in a little bit here, when we talk about Mayday stuff, um, I went back to Woodstock. Um, God, I think it was last year and gave the Mayday presentation. I sat in front of in a room and I went three days in a row. And my department has supported me with going places, which is nice. And I went there for three days in a row and the chiefs were the guys that were firemen with me. They, you know, they moved up the ranks and the battalion chiefs are friends and and all that kind of stuff. And they called me in because they knew the story was important. And they called me in because they knew that if I told the story, the guys that sat in the room and girls that sat in the room that knew me, all of a sudden it would become real to them. But standing in front of all these people that you know, trying to give a presentation, you know, you're just waiting for the guy in the back to start jagging you off. And then you're, you know, everything kind of tumbles downhill. And I, I was interested to see how the turn of events was going to go while we were there. And I'll tell you the attention that they gave me while I was up on stage and the other guys was second to none. And, and they revamped a lot of their stuff based off of what we did. And you can see with Mike's comment in the chat, you yeah. know, the same thing went with them, but 
it, I appreciate the fact that they had me back. And then some of the members of their department that have gone to other places had me come in, uh, me and the guys come into their departments too. So it resonated enough with them and it was real enough to them that they said, hey, we, even though it's four years or five years later, the story is still there. The scars are still there. The, it, it may have been five years ago, but the story is still fresh. And it, it, to me, it is anyways, because I lived it. And the fact that they sat there and lived it with me, you know, was pretty cool. And, yeah. and that they gave me their attention. And afterwards, one of the guys came up to me, and I don't talk to him ever really, but uh, he came up to me and he goes, man, what was that like? And I said, like, nothing you'll ever experience. And he goes, hearing it from you and hearing it in a class or watching it on a, a, a video or a story or something is, it's night and day, it, you know, it's apples and oranges. So, um, but anyways, yeah, that's, I, I know it's in your, in your questions and I'm trying to it flow through these as we go so you so you don't get bored of me and hit the end button (laughs) (laughs) you don't got to worry about the flow that's my job you just talk man uh which is actually i really think we should just segue right into talking about that the other two intro questions that i have we can either hit later or whatever we'll figure it out because i like talking about culture and values and that but but really let's let's talk about the mayday while while we're already on here and uh and and go through you know your experience and and Really, you got the mic. I'm just here. All right. So, we in West Chicago, we had a mayday, and, and the majority of the people that are listening to me ramble have probably heard me ramble about it. But I'm hoping that if there's somebody who hasn't, maybe it hits home with them, or if um, somebody goes back and listens to your podcast. I know you're you're up over 500 followers now, so I assume the reason they're on there is is because they want to hear what's going on. And like I told you when we started talking tonight, the green room, I listened to a couple of them today, and I listened to them because I want to know what other people are thinking too, because is it just my crazy head that's thinking this, or, or are other people thinking this too? But West Chicago, we had a Mayday, and we had a Mayday on March 25th of 2017, and it was at a transfer facility. And what a transfer facility is, if, if you don't know or whoever's listening doesn't know, is basically all the garbage trucks from the area collect your shit all day long and dump it in these giant transfer facilities. And then from there, front unloaders put it into trailers and they ship it out to wherever the landfills are, Rockford or, or wherever the landfills are. And um, it was a Saturday, it was late morning, and it was myself, I was the backstep on the on the truck and we were a three-man truck company in west chicago and we're our, at our station is just a truck and the battalion and i was a backstep and we just kind of rotate backstep driver backstep driver and lou carey was the driver of the truck and brendan o'leary was the acting officer and one of the things that i found interesting after i started studying maydays after our mayday was i went to don abbott's project mayday and that was an it was incredibly powerful for me to sit through his presentation i think he condensed it down to eight hours or seven hours but a buddy of mine after we had our mayday called me and said hey don abbott's coming out to huntley you should really come out and give it a listen and before we had our mayday and and i talk about this in the mayday presentation and it's not a dig on anybody and everything i'm going to talk about it again this is this is my perspective this is todd's perspective so this isn't to say that anybody else on the scene didn't give 110% or, or whatever. This is, again, this is just my perspective. And same thing from, from pre-made it. But that day, 
we had just got done working out again believe it or not by Taylor, i used to work out too and um we got done working out and we were sitting in the radar room and we were shooting a shit and we were trying to figure out what we were going to do for dinner and we heard it over the scanner that uh ducom is going to be dispatching the fire department for a working fire at, at the Groot industries and we looked at each other and we're like oh shit that's going to be us let's go we're we're the, we're the only transfer station and so we jumped in rig and we started going and when we started going the, we were talking about what we were having for dinner. That was our conversation on the way, on the way to the fire. Is what we're going to go put this stupid thing out real quick. It's garbage. We're going to put this stupid thing out, and then we're going to go shopping. And we argued over where we were going shopping. Uh, Lou likes to shop at Jewel because it's better food, and I'm cheap. I like to shop at Aldi because I don't want to spend forty dollars for the same thing. I can get at Aldi for half the price. And so we're we're driving a group. And we can see the header as, as we're not even out of our district and we can see the header. And when engine five uh, pulls out of their quarters or a mile and maybe a little over a mile away, they reported a working fire pulling out of their station with a, with a header. And again, there, there's mistakes that was made and we're gonna talk about them. And it's not to bash anybody that was on the scene or not on the scene. Um, our airport is across the street from this and the airport, the guy working at the airport stays on the airport property unless he's given permission to leave. And he said, hey, I'll drive the crash truck over there and put that thing out for you. And he was told, no, you just stay where you're at. We got this again. This is a garbage fire, right? We, we've all been to dumpster fires. You guys, you go lights and sirens to a dumpster fire and you pull up and you're like, God damn it. I'm going to smell like shit. I got to wash my gear. You know, that's what's in our head. And so engine five got on the scene first and they reported a working fire. And Tower 6 got on the scene, and we backed into the loading docks like we trained to do all the time. And we're setting the pads pretty nonchalantly that, you know, we're going to work, and we're just going to take the the uh, basket, and we're just going to start flowing a couple thousand gallons of water at this thing. And then we're going to go to Aldi, hopefully, flip of the coin, and we're going to get dinner, and, and we're going to go home. And so that was our initial plan was, was to uh, – to just sit in the aerial and flow heavy water at this thing. And so we set up and we were about 60 feet away from the bay door. So it gave us plenty of reach to get in. And Lou jumped up in the basket and I stole somebody's five inch because if there's five inch on the ground and I need it, I just assume it's for me, right? And so I took it and I hooked it to the ladder truck and he started flowing water. And then all of a sudden the battalion chief, uh, he says, you know, shut that down. We're going interior. And I looked at him, I said, no, we're not. And he said, shut the line down. We're going interior and i said no no we're not and then brendan came over you know being the boss of the rig he's got to tell his two buddies like hey we gotta you guys gotta shut this shit down and we're going inside we're pulling a two and a half inside this building and you know we the three of us were like what are what are we doing here you know this is this is still garbage and so we shut it down and then the engine was bringing i believe it was engine seven at the time showed up and uh, they were advancing a two and a half inside the building so we we decided we'd take the two and a half in with them and help them out. And just inside the bay doors, it was a dumpster on fire. And it was nothing. It was just a, it was a dumpster. It ended up being full of tires, but uh, we just assumed it was a dumpster full of garbage. And that's that's what was on fire. So this, again, still in the mindset, we're bringing a two and a half in for a 30-yard dumpster, and we'll throw some water at it, fill it up, and then you know we'll go back and have lunch. And uh, obviously things changed. So... so we got inside and the sprinkler system was activated and it was keeping the smoke just about chest height. So we were walking low, but we were still walking. It was pretty shitty black smoke. Um, and they were throwing water at the dumpster and the fire wasn't going out. And so 
one of the reasons that it wasn't going out was a dumpster was pulled away from the wall. So there was a there was a staircase on the other side of the dumpster. So they were lofting over the dumpster. And so Lou, he walked up and he swept a wall and said, hey, I, I'm going to jump up on this wall and give me the two and a half. And I'm going to put that fire out. And we've long discussed, I don't touch hose. I get this terrible rash. Usually shows up on my arms if I touch hose. So he's also in a little bit better shape than me so he was able to jump up on the wall i assisted him he didn't really jump i helped him but i'll give him the credit for the vertical um so he jumped up on the wall and i i handed him the two and a half and he's standing right in front of the dumpster and he's going to put the fire out i grabbed onto his coat and i said i gotcha go ahead and put that fire out and he threw the nozzle right over his shoulder and he opened the bale up and then things went to shit and the jury's still out on what happened. I mean, there was, the way I remember, there was a small explosion. And when I say a small explosion, like an aerosol can or something, um, some different people have some different opinions and that doesn't really matter. He ended up coming off that wall and going backwards. And as he fell, I reported the mayday. And as I looked over the wall, all I saw was fire. And then I couldn't figure out what the fuck was going on. We're fighting a fire over here and there's a hell of a fire over here. And as I looked over the wall, all I saw from front to back was literally a raging inferno. And I had absolutely no idea what it was. I reported the mayday and I reported it like we always did. Mayday, mayday, mayday. And then I let go of the microphone and I never made another radio transmission after that. When you go back and you listen to the audio, when the chief asks to report the mayday, Brendan's actually the one, the company officer who's standing next to me is actually the one that reports to me. Thank God he was paying attention because my tunnel vision kicked in. I don't remember how much air I had. I don't remember who was in there. I don't remember any of that stuff. I did just, it, I, I don't remember it to this day. I don't remember it. Um, and that was like nothing I had ever experienced before. That, that stress was like no other. And, I, and again, I still couldn't figure out what was going on. And when we would train, we trained that the left side of our gear was for life, our life, and the right side of our gear was for rescue. And those were for the other people. So Brendan and I knew that going in. And Brendan's probably five two, but he's built like a brick shit house. He's I mean, he's he's a weightlifter. He's a he's a strong dude. And he said, I'm going over that wall and I'm going to get him. And I remember looking at my thermal imager and I couldn't see shit and and it was pouring on us because all the sprinklers were going off. And I remember throwing my thermal imager. I was getting so mad that I couldn't figure out what was going on. And so Brendan and I were looking at his and he said, I see a little black dot down there. That's gotta be him. I'm going for him. And we'd even done walkthroughs of this building. So we'd been in the building before, but with the amount of chaos and commotion going on, the radio traffic and everything, we just, we couldn't put two and two together. Well, what? was you know heads and tails and so brendan dove over the wall and myself and another guy and i don't remember who it was and i apologize if he's watching we held on to his ankles and brendan dove over that wall and somehow he was able to grab lou and he pulled lou up and when lou came up and if you got that picture you can show it when lou came up he had no helmet on he had no mask on no gloves no hood um his coat was wide open and all he said to me was, please don't let me die. And he's covered in blood. His face is burned. He's black. And we pulled him up. And I remember turning around, and then it was like everybody and their brother was there. 
And I, I remember picking him up and I threw him over my shoulder and I ran out of the building with him. And when I got outside, it was a St. Charles ambulance and a guy from Carroll Stream were standing there. And I dropped him on the ground and we started, you know, doing the, the undress thing. And uh, we got him undressed and loaded him into St. Charles ambulance and, and Brendan said, come on, we're, you know, we're going with our guy to the hospital and fell for shit to the hospital. And on the hospital, you froze on me. You're still there. Yeah, I lost you there for you a sec. You're back, though. On the way to the hospital, I said, uh, hey, Lou, I'm going to call your wife, and I need her phone number. And he gave me a couple different phone numbers, and I jag him all the time. That, And when I give the presentation, I always tell everybody that he gave me all his girlfriend's phone numbers before he gave me his wife's phone number. And his wife sat in on the presentation one day when I made that joke. And I'll tell you what, everybody in the room laughed except one person. I bet you can guess who that was. And uh, so I finally got her number and I called her and she didn't answer. And I called her again and, and write to voicemail. So I sent her a text and I said, hey, it's Todd. Uh, can you give me a call and you got a second? And she pretty much knew right then and there that something was wrong. And I didn't have her phone number before that, obviously. And, and those are some of the things that changed after this. but. She called me back, and that was, at, honest to God, was the hardest phone call that I've ever ever been on. And I said, uh, hey, Lou got hurt at a fire. And she said, what happened? I said, you know, those truck guys, when they touch hose, things go to shit. And one thing about me is anytime something bothers me, I make a joke. And, well, I make a joke about everything because it, that's just how I get through shit. And I said, he, you know, he touched hose, and then he, he fell down and went boom. And she said, well, is he breathing? And I, I looked at him and I'm like, I looked at the St. Charles medic and I looked at Brendan and I looked back at him and I said, hey, uh, you breathing? And he shook his head yes. And I said, oh yeah, he's breathing. I said, but you gotta get to the hospital. And talking to her, she doesn't even remember leaving. She just remembers getting in the car and going. And I caught a lot of shit for making that phone call. And I'll tell you, if I had to do it over again, I would. And, and the reason I caught a lot of shit for that from people was they think that the fire chief should be making that call. And nothing against the fire chief, but whose fire chief's making that call? And and when when John Doe fire chief calls from, you know, that's the box alarm change of quarters chief, she doesn't know him from Adam. So when I made the call in my head, I wanted it to come from somebody she knew. I thought it would be a little more reassuring. And, and she agrees. She's, she's glad that that I made the call, but we got to the hospital and they ended up rushing him right back and, and cleaning him up in CT and, and all that kind of stuff. And you have the video when you put it up, but you'll see that his cheek is ripped open and his head's ripped open and he had some uh, fractures and uh, some neck and back issues. And, you know, then it started setting in while we were sitting there as people started showing up to the hospital that um, my back was a little tweaked up from carrying him out. And we, you know, when we sat down and everything started wearing off, the realization started clicking in that, holy shit, you know, what just happened. And, and our lieutenant at the time was off on a Kelly day. And on the way to the hospital, I just texted him and said, Lou, CDH, um, Mayday or something along those lines. And, and uh, he came to the hospital and he started making all the phone calls to my wife and, and Brendan's wife and whatnot. And I live an hour away from my Chicago. And it's a blessing and a curse, right? Because I decompress when I leave and I have a nice time to listen to podcasts on my way in. 
um, unless it's a lean heart podcast and it's three times I got to make the trip to listen to it. But um, when, when, when my Lieutenant called my wife and said, Hey, there's, you know, there's been an accident. You should come to the hospital. Now she's got to drive an hour too. And Lou's wife's driving an hour and Brennan's wife's driving a half hour, 40 minutes or whatever. And they, nobody knows, they don't know what's going on, right? You don't want to tell them over the phone what's going on. And so when they pull up by that time, you know, there's off duty guys there, there's on duty guys there, there's fire chiefs there from, from our town, from other towns and people are starting to show up. And, and Central DuPage Hospital did a great job, but they said that was probably one of the most chaotic scenes they'd had because you know how we are, we're firemen. When we show up, we don't stop at the front door. We, if we need to go back, whether it's your kid or, you know, it's, you, you go right past security, you go right past the door, you know the codes, you're going to the back. And, and uh, so when they walked in and saw that, of course, you know, what do they think? They think the worst. And one of the things that we talk a lot about when we give the presentation is the mayday and the importance and the training of what happened afterwards. And what did we change to make it better? And Lou spent, um, he spent a day in the hospital and came home later that night or late, late maybe early the next day. And he was off work uh, for six weeks, I think. And, and he came back and he'll be the first one to tell you that he came back too soon mentally. Uh, physically, he's a machine, right? So the doctor said, oh, once you can do 100 push-ups you can come back and you know first doctor's visit he said well i you know i did six thousand of them before breakfast so uh you know physically i can come back mentally i don't think any of us were ready to come back and i say that because i'll never forget my first fire after that fire was a sign shop a sign on the front of a ice cream store and so tower six pulls up basket to the roof brian and i go to the roof and um, they said, hey, we think it got inside and it's in, in, the, in the ceiling of the ice cream shop. And I'll tell you what, I never ran back to the basket so fast. And I said, fuck it. Why, why am I standing on top of this roof when there's fire under, for what? what? You know, what are we, who are we going to hurt this time? And I got back in the basket and I said, fuck it, let it burn down. I really don't care. And it took a good number of fires. And, and I don't know how it was for the other guys, but it took a good number of fires before the confidence started to kick back in. And, and I remember going to an attic fire uh, shortly after two and we're, we're, we're in the bedroom and right as they open the scuttle and start putting water on it, we start dropping a little ceiling. And the first thing I said to my lieutenant, I said, when things go to shit, I'm diving head first out that window. So if you need me, I'll be laying in the backyard with a broken neck before I let this thing kill me. Because I just, I couldn't get my bearings back to me. So I say we probably should have taken a little bit of time because we probably should have taken a little bit of time. On the flip side of that, one of the things we needed was to come back to the firehouse, right? Because I'll tell you, for five or six shifts afterwards, we didn't do anything but sit at the kitchen table and drink coffee. And guys came into the firehouse and visited us, and guys we'd never met before came in and talked to us and said, hey, we were listening to the radio, and hey, you know, we, we want to let you know we're thinking of you. And you know, we got a lot of phone calls from people we knew and people we didn't know. And, and so that was what we needed mentally i don't think any of us were ready oh. the other part to that i've been i've been working at a firehouse since i was 18 years old and my wife and my three kids every third day i get up and i go to work and i either go for a day or two days you know i work a lot of 48 so a lot of times i'll say i'll see you in a couple of days and we don't think twice about it and I'll tell you that after that incident, we started thinking twice about it. And you made sure 
you know, they always say, don't go to bed mad. Don't leave in the morning without saying I love you. And I used to never wake my kids up before I went to work. I'd say goodbye to them the night before because when I opened their door, the littlest creek, every kid would pop out of bed. And after that day, I said, I don't really give a fuck if they wake up and don't go back to bed for 48 hours. Not that it's your problem, but I'm saying goodbye to my kids. And what we didn't figure out is that, or I shouldn't say figure out, what we didn't think about either is that when we went back to work, they didn't. And every one of our wives was a stay-at-home mom. So what do you think happened when I went back to work the first day and my wife texted me at 8.05 and said, how's the first five minutes of work going? And I didn't answer. What, you know, and who was there for her? Nobody. And, and what department thinks about that? And that's one of the things we talk about is what's your contingency plan for the family? What, what are we doing for the family? Not only, not only, uh, are, are we trying to figure out what to do for the guys, but what are we doing for the family too? And thankfully our wives were close enough. They knew each other. And so they talked on the phone quite a bit, but to each other. So they didn't have, and peer support has something for spouses. And, and one of the things where we as a department dropped the ball was we didn't bring resources in for us. There's resources out there and we let our guys chew the fat in the morning. And it, it wasn't just Tower 6 that was on the call. There, you know, this was a working fire that went to a second alarm or a box alarm. And as we run in West Chicago as the Alliance, you know, we get three trucks and three engines and a squad and, and three ambulances and five chiefs. And sometimes it seems like we get a helicopter and an airplane and a clown to the scene too. We get a lot of stuff. So there was a lot of people affected by this. And, and those were some of the, the personal lessons that we had to learn from was what about our families? Some of the professional lessons we had to learn was, how did this happen? Why did this happen? And so in order to learn from stuff, we have to admit, admit fault, right? And if nobody else on that fire ground that day wants to admit fault, I will take the blame for all of it. If me taking the blame means, means that Alex is gonna go to work tomorrow and save his life or save somebody else's life, you can blame me for whatever you want. My skin is thick enough. I don't give a fuck what you think of me or what I did. I'll take every one of them and nobody else has to take blame for everything. But we as a, as a company were complacent going there. We were worried about our meals. We weren't worried about the fire because this was, this was a garbage fire to us. It was nothing more than a garbage fire. And what it ended up being was a dumpster fire, but it started as a truck fire. And the loading dock that Lou fell into was a semi truck. Uh, they call them tuggers or single cab rigs that back uh, trailers in that get filled up with garbage. And that's what started the fire. And it communicated up to a dumpster full of tires. When we went in, we were fighting a dumpster fire. We had no idea there was a truck fire. Some guys were fighting a truck fire and didn't know there was a dumpster fire. And so that accountability, that scene control, that's on every one of us that's there to one, have a little bit of radio discipline and two, make sure that everybody on the scene knows we're working two fires here and there's a truck and an engine company working this fire and there's a truck and an engine company fighting this fire and you guys need to know what each other's doing. And so complacency is huge and, and complacency kills, but it's not one thing. It's not one thing that, that causes a mayday and it's not one thing that, that kills people. And what I learned after listening to the audio and I, I couldn't understand it for the life of me and I, it really hit me after I went to Don Abbott's Project Mayday and what Don Abbott talks about, one of the things that he really pushed, I said, should, should we talk about God rest his soul? One of the things that he really pushed was when you push that button to transmit your mayday, transmit the entire message. 
And from the day I started in the fire service, my Mayday training, I usually went in a room with a radio, with a blacked out mask or my hood over my mask or, or cellophane over it or some bullshit. And then you call the Mayday and here's how it went. Mayday, Mayday, Mayday. Go out with your Mayday. Hey, it's Todd, I'm on the second floor and something fell on me and I need some help. Okay, great, follow your Grab Lives procedure, turn your light on, make some noise, we're sending a RIT company to come get you, right? A lot of us probably went through that same RIT training. And that's fucking bullshit. That's what kills people is that it's not practical, it's not realistic, there's no stress involved in it, and that's what we did. We did it a lot. And then when you come out of that room after you called your mayday, smooth bump bump to the pump, crawl out, find a 25-foot section of hose or a 50-foot section of hose, maybe slide under an apparatus, and then you're out. And let's hurry up because we got 25 other guys that got to go through mod B or mod C today. So, right? And, I, again, I'm not bashing anybody. We just don't know any better. Yeah. Yeah, uh, generations so, of firefighters were, were taught that way or Lunar and all that other stuff. And, and yeah, uh, stories like yours and, and what Don Abbott brought and uh, many others are, are starting to change that. And, and for the better, they're realizing it doesn't work. Yeah. Um, one of the other things, and, and well, before I get on to my next soapbox item is, is uh, I, when I give the presentation, I tell everybody, if, if I can change one thing, if you walk away from here with one thing, if there's one thing that I could take to my grave with me, it's that people will stop calling Mayday three times and waiting for a reply. And after I listened to Don Abbott talk about it, and after I listened to his 6,000 radio transmissions of the same shit over and over and over again, I went back and I played our audio. And my chief gave me all the copies of all of dispatch audio, the whole nine. And we use Fireground Blue, which Ducom doesn't record, but Tricom does. So it's a little scratchy, but since I was there and know what's going on, I bet I've listened to that audio a thousand times. And I can almost recite the audio to you and I don't need to listen. I know who said what, where, when, and how they said it. And what happened was I called the Mayday three times. And before the chief was able to answer the Mayday, somebody made a radio traffic about advancing a hose line. And then the chief said, hold your radio traffic, we have a Mayday. And by that point, I was already lost. I, my tunnel vision had already kicked in I was done on the radio. And so then the chief comes back on and says, you report your mayday and tell me what you got. And then Brendan comes on and gives a report. Radio discipline, right? Radio discipline. And then radios are going crazy. And every single radio has a scan feature on it. And we have, and it's in our policies and it's, we talk about it and we look at it and Everybody has a radio on scan all the time. Because I don't know how many house fires you've been to, but most of the time when you're at a house fire, you get called away to go to another house fire. So everybody has a radio on scan just in case there's something better comes up right here. We all do it. We're all guilty. I mean, it's 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 what it is. And so we have live mum, which automatically fills in companies when there's a working fire, gas leak, prolonged incident, whatever. And so live mum was starting to kick in at this time too. And, and, because of where it was in our town, Tricom was dispatching companies too. So guys that had their radios on scan, and, and I was guilty of this too. Again, if somebody asked me to blame for all the things that went wrong that day to help somebody else save their lives, blame it on me. I, I don't care. I had my radio on scan. I was complacent. I, I was just as guilty of the problem as everybody else. And so all that radio traffic starts to come in. And 
then it's, it's absolute chaos, right? You had yelling, screaming, sprinklers, fire, hose lines, five, six companies, radios going blaring. And of course, everybody has to have their radio on, on 10 or maybe 11 if it'll go that high because God only knows what somebody else is doing. And so one of the things to circle back to what I was saying, one of the things that I, if I can change anything out of that is one, radio discipline. And we've gotten so much better at radio discipline. Unfortunately, we almost had to kill a guy to do it, but we got so much better at it. And the other thing is that I finally got changed in our policy, and I hope people really take a look at it. And I will let them listen to our audio. And all Don Abbott shit is all on projectmayday.com. You can look it up. This isn't stuff that I just dreamt up and, and put in a PowerPoint and went all over the state of Illinois telling people, um, give your Mayday report. Give the whole report. Right. We've we've seen catastrophic failures and deaths occur from from the Mayday report getting cut off. So when you get on the radio and you give your Mayday report, just give the whole Mayday report. Give the whole report. And when we start giving the whole report, even if the incident commander doesn't catch it, there's a good chance somebody's going to catch it. Because I'll tell you what, when I gave my report, there was probably one or two people that caught that report. So, again, if there's things that I can change and, and I know I have and. I can tell you that because I, I gave this presentation, Mike Vitale had me out in Lincolnshire, and I gave this presentation to Lincolnshire and uh, one of the other departments they used to share a joint training officer. Um, and when I walked out, you know, at the end, I would say, has anybody got any questions? And most of the time, you know, you could hear a mouse fart, right? Nobody nobody says boo high shit or fuck you. And occasionally when one person opens their mouth, it turns into an incredible dialogue and I've given the presentation in as quick as 20 minutes and there's ones I was in Round Lake and I was there for like two and a half hours because we started talking tactics and I'll talk tactics till I'm blue in the face because I think it's important but as I was walking out to my car a guy came up to me and he said hey he said uh, I'm that guy and I said you're what guy you know like I'm supposed to know you I don't know what you're talking about he goes I'm the guy who puts my radio on scan he goes because I want to know what's going on and he goes I never realized how detrimental it could be until I saw you stand up there and then I saw you and then I heard the audio and I heard the background noise and the audio and the tones going off and all the other stuff that was going on. He goes, I was that guy. And he goes, I'm not going to be that guy anymore. And, and again, if I have to take all this shit on my shoulders, if I'm the one who has to sleep with it at night, that's fine. If one person can walk away from the fact that Brendan went over that wall to get his guy, the fact that, you know, don't put your radio on scan the, the you know the fact that everybody needs to know what's going on whatever those small things are the small things are the things that kill people and it's it's made our training better and it's made our communications better and when we give the presentation at the end we talk about the things that are important and the things we learned and radios was one of the one of the things that that came up in there and like i said going to see don abbott uh, really really played a role in the presentation because I saw Don after I'd given a couple presentations and I started adding in and I tell people when I give it because I, I want to give them the credit for it that I put statistics in ours and I'm looking at one of the statistics now and, it, and the statistic is that truck companies make up 10% of the companies in the fire service but they account for over 40% of the maidens and that was a statistic that I took out of him one of their statistics is and I let me see real quick because I don't want to get it wrong I want I want to get it right um, I 
There is a we have a 44 percent and the numbers may have changed. This was when I went to his class, a higher percent of a mayday when we have somebody acting out of rank or if we have an overtime firefighter or if we're in a reserve rig. And so Brennan and Lou and I had worked together. We ended up working together for 11 years and it was a solid, solid company. I mean, those guys are the best of the best hands down. And if I had to go through shit with anybody, it'd be those guys. But we, Brennan was acting up and Lou was driving and things weren't as they normally were. And that's at no fault of anybody. That's just simply a statistic that, again, when I sat in Don's class and I started looking at this shit, I went, oh, yep, that was us. 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 It's the same shit. People are running into the same things and, and we need to learn from those things and again that was one of the things while i'm on this um i gotta i gotta give props where props are due and i'm i have the powerpoint pulled up on the computer behind my tablet you can't see it but i'm glancing over at it because i don't want to miss anything and the third powerpoint in the powerpoint presentation is the battalion chief that was on duty that day and the battalion chief was hugh stott and right now hugh stott is fighting als and als is a, a terrible disease I watched my dad die from it, and and Hugh's got an uphill battle. And the reason I bring him up was because I, I really attribute the success we had to him that day. And if you ever sat through one of Hugh's SCBA classes, it's more fun to watch butter melt on toast. But he was passionate. He was passionate about everything he did. And when I first met Hugh, I thought to myself, Jesus Christ, this guy and I are on two totally different ends of the spectrum, right? This guy is this guy is a fireman's fireman. This guy knows the firehouse. This guy has a command presence. This guy's a traditionalist. This guy is the guy. And then here's me, right? A smart-ass 25-year-old kid who's partying with his friends, smoking cigarettes, drinking beer, having a good time. And we're two totally different ends of the spectrum. And I'll tell you that we ended up working together for a long time, and I have a lot of respect for that man. And I believe that he's one of the reasons we came out that day. And Hugh always told us, you can, act, you can do whatever you want inside the firehouse. You can walk around in your thong and your tank top with your flip-flops on, but the second that bell goes off, the second those doors open and you get on that rig, if you don't act like a professional, you won't be working here. You're a professional, act like one. And he expected that out of you. And he expected you to do it at training. He expected you to do it at the firehouse. And again, I attest a lot of our success that day to him. Our lieutenant that was off duty that day, uh, Jason Day, he's not with West Chicago anymore. He's a deputy chief at Carroll Stream. He was a training officer and Jason was the same way. And there was an ongoing joke that we trained five and six times a day and it wasn't a joke we did he was very passionate about training and he demanded the best out of us and there were days that it was like jesus christ almighty dude we've done this and you know sometimes it was a little much but at the end of the day when shit hits the fan you go back to the things that are in your pocket right and the things that are in your pocket are the amount of times we did mayday drills the amount of times that um you know we rescued each other and did carries and rig placement and all those things that we do all the time they came to a head that day and the reason 
that I called the mayday as fast as I did, the reason that Brendan didn't have a problem going over the wall, the reason that we knew what was in each other's pockets, the reason that we pulled Lou out and we carried him out, and the reason that he's still on the job today is because of those guys. Those guys demanded perfection at, at every aspect of the game, and, and, that's what, and that's what we delivered. With all the things that went wrong that day, the thing that went right was we saved our own guy, right? We saved our own guy, and he was off for a limited amount of time. And I, Don Abbott has another, um, I don't know where the thing is in here somewhere, but uh, the amount of times that the rescues are made from within the structure, right? We know, yeah. anybody that's a fireman knows that, that it's significantly high. And November's made a month, right? We do our rid under fire, down firemen, and all that kind of stuff. And, and the way we normally do it is there's a down fireman and the red team gets activated. And you go in and you find him and you package him up and check his air and, and all that other bullshit. And somebody tries to tie a hasty harness that doesn't fucking work because you can't see. And all this other bullshit that we practice at roll call that when push comes to shove, none of it matters. And I don't want to say none of it matters, but when push comes to shove and the adrenaline kicks in, you go to what you know. And if you tie a hasty harness once a year, a roll call drill, three roll call drills before you do a writ scenario, when you get into the writ scenario, you're not going to be able to check it. If you pull out your writ pack every six months and go over it and figure out where the mask is and how to turn it on and that it's a sled and you can, if you do it once a year or twice a year, you're going to be as good as you do once or twice a year. And what we need to focus on is more realistic training. And again, I can get on my soapbox for hours, but when somebody goes down in a fire, guys stay on the hose line, guys continue to vent the roof, guys continue to do searches. A lot of guys change and go to that down fireman. When we go to a house fire, and I don't know how it is when you go, but there's a lot of times we put so many people inside of a fucking house fire that we don't put it out with water, we put it out because there's so many people the fire can't go anywhere anymore, right? We just, we throw much, so much shit at it, the fire's like, well, fuck, I better go out because I can't go anywhere. Those people, when the mayday's called, that's who's going to get that guy. Those people don't have a rip back. Uh, the other thing we we learned a lot about was our RIT company was Tower 38 out of wheat that day. And the way we run is our third truck is our RIT company on a working fire assignment. And when the Mayday was transmitted, the Mayday was transmitted 12 minutes after uh, the initial call. And so we know that the first four to six minutes are pretty instrumental, right? So we were on scene about four to six minutes. And Tower 38 was pulling up. They hadn't even set their parking brake yet. And the chief tells them on the radio, Tower 38, you're my RIT company. And they, when we talked to them afterwards, because the, the truck companies get together on a pretty, pretty regular basis. And when we talked to them afterwards, they talk about how they had to figure out what tools to grab because it wasn't pulling up and, hey, you know what, you grab a saw, you grab a spreaders, I'll grab tools, you grab a tarp, I'm gonna grab this. It was, there's a guy down, it's shit and get time. Grab, what are we gonna grab? And so we started training on that. We pull up and the mayday happens right now. If you're in the third truck, if you're the writ truck, you're pulling up the, at the time that the majority of maydays happen. You're pulling up in that, that sweet spot where, where the high percentage of maydays happen. And so what are you pulling off your rig? Are you grabbing extension ladders and e-tools and, and a, a hydrogram and a rasp bag? Or are you getting a hand tool and a writ pack? And are you going to work? And we know, we know as firemen that it's usually not the first writ company that pulls a guy out, right? If the RIC company gets there, the RIC company finds them and packages them. And it's usually a second or third, fourth RIC company that goes in and, and actually pulls the guy out. So we had to train and we didn't know any better because we didn't have the people 
that have been through it, right? So how, you don't know what you don't know. So we we had to take everybody's account of that situation and we had to say, hey, how do we make ourselves a better department? How do we make ourselves a better RIT company? How do, how do we make all of it better? And and so we had to take all those things. And again, it, it had to build into our training. We had to learn something from this. We could have very easily sat back and said, hey, you know what, West Chicago had a made a uh, March of 2017 and uh, we got our guy out. So that's all good. I've given this presentation 56 times over 1,200 firemen. And I've had Hugh Stott, Jason Day, Brennan O'Leary, and Luke Carey with me the majority of the time I've done it. And it's instrumental to have all the players in the game there so you can hear it from the battalion chief's perspective, from the off-duty lieutenant's perspective, the acting officer's perspective, and a guy who doesn't remember shit. Because the last thing he remembers was jumping up on a wall, grabbing a two and a half, and me grabbing the back of his coat with two fingers saying, I got you if something happens. And then he remembers waking up in the hospital with his wife and his kids sitting around him. And so we can fill in the blanks for him. And, and sometimes we add some color to it, right? Because we want to make sure that he fills up my coffee cup in the morning. I'm not going to fill my own coffee cup up. You fill it up. I want to make sure we go shopping at all. These all fill in the blanks as I see fit. But we've given the presentation. And, and the reason I say that, it's again, this isn't to pat ourselves on the back. It's not, thank God, West Chicago had a mayday, right? It's not Todd Besajo and Luke Carey and Brendan O'Leary. It's... But well, we've been to the Chiefs Conference, we've been to the Chiefs Symposium, we did the McHenry County Chiefs, we've been to a lot of departments, we've been to officer development days, we've been to those things. And the reason we've been to those things, that if tomorrow Alex Tanner goes to work and he puts his, and he gets out of the rig and remembers to turn his radio off scan before he's sent to the second floor to do a primary search, and at the end of the day, that saves your life, then it was all worth it. Every bit of it was. I just clicked back over to the, the chat. I don't know if... Uh, if there's anything going on in there, I haven't scrolled up and down to see it, but I mean, I see Vitaly's name, so I just quit reading. Yeah, I it would appear that they're probably as speechless as I am. I mean, what, what do you say other than, you know, thank you for sharing that what happened and continuing to share it. And, and uh, what am I going to echo everything you just said? No, like it's it speaks for itself. Uh, we all need to learn from from things like this and be open about it and and put a foot forward and try to change. Now I will tell you with. With the good comes the bad. And there's been a lot of comments over the years. And like I told you in the green room, I'm the kind of guy that if you ask me a question, if you say, Todd, do I look fat in these pants? And you look fat in those pants. If I tell you look fat in those pants, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. And most people know me by that. From when I think it to when I say it, there's not a great filter. And so I think it's important to talk about the bad stuff that came with it too. And some of those bad things are your peers. And... I remember a lot of the things that were said to me afterwards. I remember um, somebody from a neighboring town told me that this would never happen in their town. And I thought that was a pretty shitty comment. And I, I think to myself that if that's the attitude you're gonna have, God help you because you're next. And I remember going to an honor guard convention the year after uh, the May Day. And right after the May Day, uh, Jason had set up something with God, I want to say it was Cicero Fire Department, but I don't know for sure. I, I'm leaving home. I don't remember. Let's pretend I didn't say that. He set up with the fire department for a uh, officer development day, and we went in and gave the presentation. It was fresh enough that we were. It was hard to get through, and um, it was weeks afterwards. And uh, when I was down at the honor guard convention a year later, I was walking down the hall with a guy, a buddy of mine, and a guy comes up to me and goes, "You're Todd, right?" And I said, uh, "Yeah." 
And he goes, from West Chicago, you're the Mayday guy. And I said, I am. And he said, I'm from whatever department it was that we went to. Again, I can't remember. And he said, uh, you came to our department for our officer development day. And he said, that was a very powerful speech you gave. And he said, it was very raw. It was very emotional. It was very raw. And he said, you changed your group, your company changed our department. You changed the way we do things. You changed the way we talk about it. You changed our attitudes. He goes, so I wanted to tell you, I wanted to thank you for for coming out sharing your story and i said no problem he said tonight he said find me i want to buy you a beer and i said it's open bar why don't you buy me two you cheap asshole and (laughs) we laughed and and and, uh, we went on our way and as i was walking down the hall with my buddy he turned to me he said it must be nice and i said what's that and he goes everywhere you go somebody knows who you are because you had a mate so everybody knows todd and i thought to myself (laughs) i wouldn't wish this on my worst enemy i wouldn't wish those sleepless nights i wouldn't wish the amount of alcohol that was consumed afterwards to try and numb some of the pain i wouldn't wish those days when you go to a fire and you're like nope not going in fucking hit it hard from the yard i'm I'm not doing this anymore i wouldn't wish those conversations i wouldn't wish your wife to ever wonder what's going to happen to you when you go to work god forbid your kids to ever wonder what are going to happen to you at work and luke carries kids were old enough to know what was going on. My kids, my daughter was a couple of weeks old and my boys were you know, still young enough that um, we've talked about it. They've seen the pictures. They know now they're much older, um, but at the time they didn't know. And Lou's kids came to his room at night crying because, um, because they were having flashbacks of what their dad looked like for days to come and they were scared. They were scared that there's something was going to happen to their dad. And to answer, I just saw a question pop up. Uh, Timmy's sister, I was taking care of her. Thanks, Timmy. Filter some of that for me. But yes, yeah, there's, sorry, I'm not even looking. Is, uh, <laughs> no, I just popped over and saw it pop up. But there is, yes, there's a whole writ assignment uh, that comes in. We're, we're very fortunate that we actually take it serious. And um, yeah, Nick, their operations a lot different than what we're used to up north, uh, for sure. Uh, it's It's not as i mean i guess it's, it's not as or, organic is probably the, the nicest way to put it it's, it's much more structured um so again again there's there's good bad and ugly that comes with it and and i remember going to a, a very close friend of mine's house um very shortly after and he said, hey, what happened at that mayday? Give me the short version, though. And I thought to myself, how do you give a short version of something? Because again, if you don't go through it, you weren't there, you weren't a part of it. It's like sitting in class, right? We've all sat in classes. We've watched the videos. We've heard the stories. We all know those those big fires where firemen have died, right? We, I, we sit and listen to the Charleston story. We hear the stories out of Chicago. We, New York, 9-11, we hear all these things. And they're stories because we don't know the people and we we don't know who is affected by them. And so when it starts to get personal, it changes the game a little bit. And, And I think sometimes in my head, when people say things like those couple examples I've given you, I think they say them in jest to try and make it lighthearted. And I know because I'm that guy. I, I can I can joke about anything. You give me something, I'll find a, I'll find a punchline to it. Um, 
but there's sometimes that the jokes just and the comments are they're just it's just not the right time and place and and I've heard the comment a lot over the years of oh everybody knows who you are because you parade all over the state giving the Mayday presentation and again every time I've given the presentation and I, when I gave it at the McHenry County Chiefs I gave it in Huntley at the McHenry County Chiefs and at the end are there any questions and the Chiefs all said no 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 good thanks for coming out and I got up and I went to the bathroom and as I was standing at the urinal the chief comes in he goes Todd you in here and I said yeah he goes I'm gonna I'm gonna pee at the urinal next year I just wanted to tell you that uh, we got a lot of work to do on our end thanks for coming out and I looked over and I said <laughs> Thanks for having me, Chief. If this is where we're going to have the conversation, that's fine. We can have the conversation here. And then the follow-up email from a couple other chiefs, you know, that said, hey, we, we're not ready. And what they mean is we're not ready as a department if something happens. Are, who's calling the wife? Who's making sure the kids are taken care of? Are we sending a car to pick them up? And, and Lou lives in the city. So it, does the battalion in that district go pick his wife up? What is she going to think? You know, you automatically think the worst. So, again, there's there's a lot that goes into it. It's not just, you know, we've all filled out the packets, right? Who's making the call? Who's doing this? Who's doing that? That's great. Who's really doing it, though? Well, who's doing it when tomorrow you go to work and something happens to you? Who's calling your wife? Who's showing up at your house? And I'll tell you that when hopefully nobody has to make that call to my wife ever, but I hope if they do, it's somebody she knows on the other line. Because if it's not, it's going to add a whole different element to it. And God forbid it's ever anything serious like what it was with Lou. I don't want just anybody calling her. And I'm not saying the person that calls her isn't going to have the best intentions in mind. But I want somebody that I know that she knows calling her. Because, and again, my lieutenant at the time, Jason Day, he made those calls and she knew Jason and she had his phone number. She also knew that when his name popped up on caller ID on a gold shift at three o'clock in the afternoon, something bad happened. After Jason was instrumental, he followed up with the wives for weeks that we didn't even know about. He made those phone calls to make sure everything is everything good at home is, you know, do you guys need anything and who's doing that? And those are the things that we that nobody wants to talk about those are the hard conversations how are the how are the guys legitimately doing and we as a department did not do a good job of making sure and i'm not throwing mud on anybody's face we as a department did not do a good job and i'll tell you i, I got to give them a lot of props my deputy chief sat in on my last presentation the last presentation i did was at uh, McHenry fire department and my father-in-law was a fireman and my deputy chief sat in on the presentation and they sat in the back and I could see the look on their face. And afterwards, my deputy chief came up to me in a parking lot and said, I'm sorry that it took me this long to sit through it. I, I couldn't until now. And now I realize some of the things that, that we dropped the ball on. Because we did. As an organization, we did. So if anybody takes anything away, turn your fucking radio off scan. Make sure you take care of your guys. Make sure you take care of their families. And have a plan, not just the bullshit plan that we write down on a piece of paper. If you die, who's going to call your wife? But the plan that if something, if you actually get hurt, if something actually happens, who's making those phone calls? Who's showing up at the house? And soapbox for now. For now. I mean, there's plenty of other soapboxes, but yeah, uh, it's just, 
there's so many things. I, I mean, I'm not just me. I'm sure everyone listening is the same thing. You're, you're reflecting back on your own organization, your own experiences that you've gone through, and if you're even remotely prepared for any of that stuff. And I, I, I don't want to steal your spotlight here, but I definitely uh, – I, I agree. I don't think – I think people put their heads in the sand right now. I think because of all the things that we've been given, all the things we've learned from from Charleston, from you know Black Sunday, from those things, from 9/11, all those things that have happened, we've we've continued to learn as a as a as a trade, and we take it for granted, and we think it's not going to happen to us. I, I think a majority of the fire service thinks it can never happen to us, or or they just put their head in the sand and. Like you said before, it's going to come up and get you. If if and not to sound that sounded like a scare tactic, but I, I don't know how else to phrase it. And, and like I said, there's bad that comes out of it, but I think there's a, because of the positive outcome, there was so much more good that came out of it. The good was we had we were forced to talk about things that were uncomfortable to talk about before, and and it made us focus our training a little bit more and it made us go back and review policies. And, you know, for me, May Day was just something we did in November. You know, I mean, I, I was that guy and I have no, again, I'll, I'll take all the lumps for it. I'll, I'll take it all on the chin. I'll carry it all on my shoulder. I was that guy. I, hey, we're doing May Day training. All right, I'll go first. And what, what closet are we going in? Oh, we're going in the EMS room. Okay, great. May Day, May Day, May Day. You, you know, and so, you again you don't you don't know what you don't know and i'm glad that we have the opportunity and again we've been all over the state and we've been to small departments and we've been to big departments and i don't have a problem standing up in front of a fire chief and telling him what i think not about his organization but the fire service as a whole and we see complacency constantly right and so the last week we've seen there's been a significant uptick in house explosions due to gas leaks, right? I can tell you that the last gas leak I was on the whole way there, we're all like, Jesus Christ, you probably left your pilot light on, you know, blah, 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 blah. Here we go. And now we see guys are going to the hospital, houses are exploding, bad shit's happening. It's that time of the year where furnaces are starting to go back on and all that kind of stuff. And complacency will kill you. And I hate fire alarms. If I could do away with one thing, it would be fire alarms. Two o'clock in the morning, walking a factory, I hate it. I don't care what you say about it. I hate it. I'll always hate it. It will always be a pet peeve of mine. I would rather do anything than walk around a warehouse trying to find the activated detector at two o'clock in the morning. But it's our job and we get paid to do it. And we're there for 24 hours. Do your fucking job. Check your rig, have the roll call. Know where your shit's at. Know where your other guy's shit's at. You know, and, and I think it was you that I talked about the golf ball in the pocket, right? Yeah. Wasn't that me and you yeah, had the yeah, conversation? Yeah. When I worked in Woodstock, a guy that I looked up to, and I looked up to him because he had the same attitude that I do, right? Like, I'm going to tell you what I think. I don't give a fuck if you like it or not. And one day he was switching out to his new gear. And I was sitting there watching. And I'll tell you, you can learn a lot by watching a guy take stuff out of his gear if you pay attention, especially if you're a younger guy. And I said to him, why in God's name do you have golf balls in your pocket? And he said, because when I started in the fire service, if you got lost, you took your helmet off and you threw your helmet to try and find a wall or break a window. And then, and then the officer got the, got the radio. And so you'd take the radio and you'd throw the radio. And then we realized, holy shit, if I throw my radio, then I can't talk to anybody. He goes, so then I put a golf, I had a golf ball and I threw it. And I thought, 
it's hard. I can throw it far. And he goes, so I keep a couple golf balls in my pocket. And I'll tell you, for 20 years, I've had three golf balls in my right pocket of my jacket and my turnout gear. And the guys I work with, they know that because left is for life and right is for rescue. The left is for my life. That's my bailout. That's me hooking onto you. Right is for rescue. That's the civilian rescue. That's the pre-tied webbing. That's the other other bullshit when we find somebody naked that we can't grab onto and we got to tie them up. It's pre-tied. It's ready to go. But we know that because we trained on it, because we had roll call, because roll call is important, because I want to know who's working on the truck in the town next to me. And I want to know who my third truck in is going to be and who my writ company is going to be, because it matters to me. And we talk about those things at roll call. And in our policies, it tells us to have roll call. It's not in our policies to have roll call because somebody went, how can we fuck with these guys at 8 o'clock in the morning? Ah, you know what? Make them sit around the bar and drink a cup of coffee and talk about shit. That's how we'll fuck with them. They did it because there's an importance to it. And the importance is knowing where everything's at, getting that one tool out of the cabinet and going over it, getting that rip pack. And I saw I saw somebody up here put on here that, that their department didn't know where their rip pack was. I'll tell you, and, and this is no joke, um, we did a stabilization drill the other day uh, for extrication. And we didn't cut, we didn't saw, we didn't break. All we did was use our stabilization stuff. Airbags, low pressure, high pressure, rescue 42s, all the other all the other cool shit that's on the squad. And as one of the senior guys, I was helping some of the younger guys and five guys that were there didn't know how to use a ratchet strap. That's not their fault. Nobody ever showed them how to use a ratchet strap. So we say, here's the Rescue 42s, here's the Rescue 42 bags. It's got ratchet straps, picket plates, hooks, grabs, chains, whatever you need, it's in this bag. So grab the bag, grab the Rescue 42s. Here's how the 42s work. Here's where the orange line is. Here's what it means. Here's the diagram. Here's how much we lift. Here's the angles. Here's all that stuff. We train on it, right? We train on it. We didn't train on the ratchet straps because we didn't know we needed to, but we do, because somebody didn't go over the ratchet straps. Again, it's not their fault. They don't know what they don't know. I can't speak Spanish. If you put a Spanish speaking person in front of me, I can't talk to them because I never learned it. Nobody ever taught it to me. I don't know what I don't know. And so when it was all said and done, I said to the two guys that were teaching the drill, I said, you guys did a knockout job. I said, we, it was very basic. And for some of the guys there, it was very basic. For other guys there, it was extremely complex to learn how to hook a ratchet strap and how to loosen a ratchet strap. And and we take some of those things for granted, but they don't know what they don't know. Yeah. And again, it goes back to all this stuff. If, if you're not going to take the writ pack out of the cabinet to go through it, you're not going to know how it works. If you don't check your air pack in the morning, you're not going to know when the vibe alert goes off. You're not going to know what your heads up display lights mean because you don't do it. So not to, not to get on a big training soapbox, but I know you're a big training guy. Oh yeah. I'm a big training guy. I love training. I hate bullshit training. I hate training to train. I'm, I'm also, I also think that our training, and I love big scenario training. I think it's awesome. What I've found over the years with big scenario training, and we do it by us once a month, we do Alliance training with the six towns that we train together with, is, is that not everybody gets to do it. So next month when we do Mayday training, one company is going to be the RIT company and the evolution's over. Maybe we squeeze in two evolutions. That means two companies out of the 12 that are there are going to get a chance to do the RIT stuff. So 
if you're not proactive, you may not be able to do RIT stuff for years, unless you go back to your own department. And so I know that, uh, what is it, Rescue Survey yeah. is coming to town. Yeah. So I went and listened to Rescue Survey in Huntley last year. Huntley does a big training day free to come in. Um, and Rescue Survey was there and they talked about how we're getting victims out and how we're carrying victims and how we're killing victims. And they gave a, an incredible amount of statistics. And, and those statistics are nothing but numbers unless you put them to practicality. So what we did was we took pictures of the screens that, that really meant something and we took a bunch of notes and then we went back to West Chicago and we went to the training facility and we grabbed our dummies and we smoked it up and we put the dummies in and we said, today, I don't care about your hose line. I don't care about your vent on our search. I don't care about roof ventilation. I don't care about any of that. All I care about is how we're getting these victims out. And we sat in the front apron and we talked about the statistics, which is real information of how we're getting victims out. And then we practiced just taking victims out from the first floor, from the second floor, with one person, with two people, with the company. We practiced the radio traffic. We practiced getting the victims out. The next shift. We did forcible entry, just forcible entry. One man, two man forcible entry. The next shift, we just did hose advancement. Then we just did ladders because all too often we have a burn tower. So we want to light a fire and we want to vent the roof and we want to rescue yeah. and we want to put a second line in play and we want to have a backup line and a safety line and a rig company and all those things. But what we don't do is we don't go back to the basics and the basics are the things that are going to save our lives at the end of the day or save somebody else's life. And we can't do a vent in our search if we don't know how to throw a ladder. We can't do a vent in our search if we don't know how to search. We can't pull a line into the house if we don't know how to get through the front door. We can't get a line in the house if we've never pulled it off or packed it back onto an engine. I'm not a big fan of hose lines. I've been on a truck for a long time. But there is an importance to the guys that are on the engine to know how to pull that hose line. And there's, there's an, an art. Yeah. There is. And we have guys that are that are absolutely incredible with it. And, yeah. and I'm fortunate there's a guy on my shift that I tell you hands down is the best forcible entry guy that I've ever seen. He's passionate about it. He watches the videos. He takes the class. He practices with the tools. And it's like, give the guy the tool, give him the door, and have him make me a forcible entry door prop warrior, right? Yeah. Show me what you know. Show me everything you know about force and doors. And tomorrow, you show me everything you know about ladders. And the next day you show me it doesn't always have to be me it doesn't always have to be you there's a guy on your department that is phenomenal at forcing doors and when you give him the opportunity to show everybody how to force doors for the first five minutes he's going to be uncomfortable and then when he comes out of his shell he's going to knock it out of the park and he's going to captivate his audience because they're going to go holy shit i didn't know he knew shit about anything yeah and then all of a sudden he's going to be the go-to guy that hey we got to do forced entry drill let's have him do it because he knows his shit but we have to go back to the basics because if we don't do the basics, we'll never do the complex stuff. I'm with you. I, I think, uh, and you were talking about chunking it almost. So we're we're totally transitioning to talking about training. So we're just going to roll with it because, you know, we're we're going to connect on this, and it's awesome to talk about training. So uh, one of the things I, I see when you, when you talk about basics, right? We'll talk about, and I know you're not an engine ops guy, but we talk about pulling hose. Everybody pulls the dry line and repacks it repeatedly over and over in a parking lot with no obstructions or nothing right to the same door because we all train at the same training tower over and over and over and over and over right and we never train on flowing that inside we never train on like that systematic approach to fighting fire 
compartment by compartment. So we'll watch people that'll just run through like the Kool-Aid man and, and yep. not think about how they're going to move or do anything. Or for us, like you guys are lucky you have people. We don't. You know, we have two people to maybe advance that line. And if you're going to the second floor, we got people that don't even know how to do that with their body mechanics because all we do is – and not just my department but in my area – uh, you know, a lot of people just drop the dry line and repack it because now we don't have to hang the hose and we don't have to walk it out. And we have blah, blah, blah. And it becomes complacency and laziness like you were talking about before. So, so I mean, what do we do to get past that? Like, obviously, you're, you're – Basics. Right? We go back to the basics, right? And so one of the things when we were doing this stuff is it, it, a guy who I didn't think would buy in at all says, hey, uh, what are the chances of us loading the burn tower with furniture? and just smoking it up and let's just advance the hose line around the furniture. And I said, I'll come tomorrow after shift and I'll load the place up and I'll get all the furniture in play and next shift, as long as the battalion and the lieutenants are cool with it, let's stretch lines. Let's just stretch lines. And and as a truck guy, I, I am not the best at pulling the lines I, and I'm certainly not the best at repack. I, I'll do what you tell me to do. Grab this hose, pull it here, connect it to here, make a couple offhanded jokes and put it on the rig. However, after I force the door, I'm the guy at the door feeding hose. I'm the guy at the first corner feeding hose. I'm the guy at the top of the stairs feeding hose. So I get my hands on it. Not that I like it. Please don't misunderstand me that I love touching you because I don't. But there comes a time and a place. The only way to get good at it is to do it. And what we found in the burn tower is we don't put furniture in there because then we're not NFPA compliant when we do live burns. So then what are we doing? We're stretching around corners. When was the last time you were at a house fire that there was nothing in it? Never, never. Right? Maybe once or twice. Somebody's sweating pipes on a rental, or maybe you know a floor. We had one where they were redoing the floor, and the floor was on fire. There's nothing in the house. It does happen, sure. Those are hand pump fires, right? The, yeah. Those are APWs. Those are little piss cans. We're not pulling a two and a half to the second floor of a mansion with nothing in it. Yeah. So what did we do? We brought it back to the basics. We loaded the place up with furniture. We smoked it up with a smoke machine, and we practiced pulling lines charging them, pulling them through the structure, flowing them out a window, bringing them back down, repacking them and doing it again, packing them, doing it again. And then everybody got really good at it because again, it wasn't going into an empty, we our burn tower is cans, right? They're, they're 40 foot Konex cans. So you open the door and you just walk to the other side. So we put stuff in it we brought it back to the basics. And, and when we talk about training, we right now in West Chicago have um, God, probably seven or eight guys on probation. Which means what? Which means that even if they came from somewhere else, they still haven't done it the way we do it. We can't pull up and say, hey, we got a fire in the two, we got six victims, we got to, you know, cut a hole, we got a mayday situation, we got a rip, we got a vent in our search. We have to bring it back to the basics. And so, and so, go wait on. And so, we have the opportunity to have those big scenarios. But at a company level, at a department level, we have to bring it back to the basics because we all have to be proficient at it. It's like everything else. Can't build a house unless you know how to swing a hammer. Yeah. Well, and even, you know, where I think a lot of times we just smoke it up to smoke it up, but there's nothing, there's no change in the interior, right? Like you're talking about furniture. And, and so we, we can't, our tower, we can't burn in because it's old and whatever. So we, we have to use theatrical smoke, but, but it just becomes putting theatrical smoke in a big empty container anyway so it doesn't it, it doesn't change your mechanics your muscle memory that you would have to try to figure out where the hell you are 
and moving and, furniture around and, and, and that kind of stuff. Uh, I, I don't know. I guess it's hard to get everyone on shift versus like taking classes. You could take a class where they put carpet all over the place and they do all these other things, yeah. right? But like on and, shift, and, you know, but it doesn't. You got to remember too. It's hard to get the whole shift together, yes. right? Yeah. And, and whether whether it's it's usually not the battalions. At least for us, the battalions are like, you guys want to go train? Go train. You want to go to next town over? You know, make sure somebody's covering you. And let's go train. It's usually guys, right? That's well, I have this to do, and I have this to do, and I have this to do. We're we're busy, right? We're doing inspections, we're running calls, but what's our job? Our job is to be ready at a moment's notice to go to somebody else's emergency, and so. All that other stuff is great, fine, fun, and dandy, but if we can't do our job, and if you can get your company to buy into it, it's very easy to get one more company to buy into it, to get one more company to buy into it, to get a shift to buy into it, and then all of a sudden, somebody working over on a trade or overtime is going, hey, yesterday I worked uh, gold shift. We were all forced and Taurus. God, we laughed our asses off. Maybe maybe uh, 2% sprung for you know a couple cups of coffee or something. I don't know. Maybe the chief bought lunch. Chief, um, you know, maybe something like that happened, and all of a sudden, it wasn't about going to force a door. It wasn't about going to stretch a line. It was about getting everybody together, making sure we're on the same page. And a lot of times, you know, we could sit at a table, we could talk tactics, so we're blue in the face and never put our hands on a hose line. But at least we're all on the same page. And if that's where it starts, if it starts by putting guys on the same page, you know what? I'll I'll go with that. I'll start with that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's something, right? How do you feel like over the course of your career, your mindset with training has, has changed or adjusted? Um, well, I'll tell you, when I started at 18 years old, I didn't give a shit about training, right? Because uh, part-time department, there was when I started in Woodstock, there was no career guy. So it was just, it was full-time guys from all over the place that were coming in. And you know how part-time departments work. Oh, yeah. You come in, you just got off of 48, you're going to go relax. And so you trained, but it was usually at your house and you just did something small or whatever. I think um, when we formed the Alliance 10 years ago and we started training with other towns, that's when it really started coming together for me as far as there's a lot of guys that are damn good firemen. I mean, they got they know a lot of shit. And, and cumulatively, there's a lot of experience. And then after the May Day, it was one of those things that you realize that your life actually depends on it. And you're not just training – you're not just hitting JPRs to check boxes anymore. So I think that that's where it really started. Again, it, it ramped up, but I think after we went to Mayday season, um, you know, six years ago, that it it's do or die now. Have you seen like uh, any any changes with Illinois' uh, state like recertification thing? You mentioned JPRs. Have you seen your training change at all with that? Um. I say JPRs because I feel like a lot of times when we train, we're always training to an objective, right? Yeah. Would, would we go to cut rough slave, make sure we do this cut and a trench cut and a Milwaukee cut and a Chicago cut and a, and a 987 and a 786? You know, what, did everybody get a chance to use a hand tool? Okay, good, we're done, right? So when I say JPR, I mean check boxes specifically. I think as a department, we're fortunate. And it, there's two ways of looking at it. I think it's fortunate. We train with the Alliance. We do live fire quite a bit. We also train with the Valley Towns, the St. Charles, Batavia's, Bartler, uh, Geneva's, and all them. So we do live fire with them. There's times that we'll do three or four live fire training sessions in a month. 
And I'll tell you, I know people that work on career departments that don't do any live fire training. And if they do it, they certainly don't do it on shift. They sign up to do it the day after shift and they have to go somewhere to do it. It's right in our backyard. And we take it for granted sometimes because there are times that never fails. Today you have live fire training, you get a house fire at night, right? So you're washing three sets of gear, but we take it for granted and we're fortunate. And we're fortunate that we get those reps. And five, six, seven, ten 10 years ago, before we had our own facility, we didn't get those reps. We got those reps when we went to somebody else's town once every couple months. And now we're doing it all the time. And you get good at something the more you do it. And it shows. It shows the guys that, the guy, you know, we have guys that call in sick for live fire drill. We have guys that do trades, vacation days, all that kind of stuff. You're going to have it everywhere. Um, and the guys that show up and train and go to those live fire drills, you can see how much, how good they are at it, you know? So I think as a whole, we've, we've gotten much better at it. Yeah. All right. Um, your onboarding process, right? So new guys, you mentioned you have a bunch of new guys. My department's got a bunch of new guys. I think our whole area is basically just filled with new guys. And, yeah. and on a lot of, in a lot of ways, it's great. In a lot of ways, obviously, it's challenging. Um, as it stands right now, uh, how, how is your process for getting those guys on? And uh, what, what are you trying to maximize while you have them before they really, like, go to shift and they're off on their own? So just like everybody else, right, There's you get a handful of guys taking the test. You get a handful of guys on the list. They're probably on 10 or 12 different lists. We're exhausting the list every time we go to hire somebody, right? We'll blow through them all. Um, we usually put them on a couple weeks of days. It, it was a week. The last group we sent through two weeks because we had a bunch of guys. There's been talk about instead of guys getting hired back to work with them, putting them with the same guys for two weeks, right? So you don't teach them air packs today, and then tomorrow I come in and, and teach them air packs and ladders. and for a little bit more consistency, at least having maybe one main character throughout the whole process. Um, we put them on a week or two a days and then they ride as an extra on shift until their shift. Their lieutenant with the with um, commentary from the guys say, hey, this guy's ready to go. Some guys it's two or three shifts and we go, hey, maybe this guy came from another career department and he's been on the job for five or six years and he gets it. And maybe another guy, came from a part-time department or maybe he came from a POC department and he needs a little more time and maybe he's going to ride as an extra for a month. Maybe he's going to ride as an extra for a month and a half. I, you know, what, whatever the case may be, there's, there's a number that we're looking for, but that doesn't mean that it's going to change. Like I said, at the end of the guy's last full week, we had opportunities to do more live burns. Guess what? You're going to do another week of days. We're going to do, we're doing more training. We need to do more training with you guys. Some guys got off quick some guys stayed on for a little bit longer and it's not it's no fault of their own again you don't know what you don't know so i would rather you take the time with me to show me what you want me to know before you just throw me out to the wolves and and because of the dynamic we run with the alliance there's a little bit more to learn than just just what goes on in west chicago it you got to know a little bit more so it's very fluid i think it works uh, like anything else it could be it could be uh tweaked a little bit and i think it's open to that uh, the training officers open to it the chiefs are open to it it's just one of those things that you have to come with an idea to sit around the to sit around the coffee table and be like well this is stupid that's not going to change anything but to say hey let's do x y and z 
you know, I, I, like I said, I think it's constantly fluid. We just had a guy redo our candidate book. He did a great job. He took it. It was the same for a while. He took it, revamped it, and it, it works. And he's going to do some more tweaking for the next group, and probably a little. And it'll probably be a fluid piece. It'll probably be a fluid binder for however long, and it'll probably never be perfect. It should change. We yeah. should change. We should constantly evolve, and we should be adding and subtracting. And I think one of the things that we're not as good as we could be on it, and I, and I hear guys on some other departments when I get hired, is tradition, culture, history. Um, tradition in the fire service is one of those things that if we don't make it a priority, it's, it's gonna be easy to, to lose. And some departments have a lot of tradition and some departments don't have a lot of tradition at all. And some of us have the traditions of red rigs and pipe poles and Maltese crosses and red and green lights and but the new guy coming on that's 22 years old doesn't know what the red and green lights mean or why do we have pipe poles? Why don't we have this? Or why are the rigs red? Or you know, why did you guys paint the, rig, the doors on the front of the station red? Or who came before you? Who was, the, who was the guy that was instrumental in building these stations? Or, hey, how about the Mayday we had? Or how about the, you know, the guy we had that passed away from cancer? Or all those things that are particular to our department, we need to be better as a department, as an organization, as a fire department as a whole, on making sure that people know the culture and the history and the traditions of the fire service. Yeah, I, I think, uh, well, you know, every organization's got their own history and everything behind that. I, I also do think that we're, we're at kind of a tipping point for the overall fire service culture where I think a lot of that stuff doesn't get as talked about, you know, uh, to new guys and, uh, you know, okay, we're going to tell everyone that Ben Franklin founded the American fire service. How many times are you going to sit through, you know, an Academy that that's all they tell them and there's nothing else there. And, uh, I personally, I know I took it for granted that I grew up around it. So I already had, you know, a leg up in knowing some of those things and some of the guys that I work with, uh, when I've tried to articulate that stuff are like, what the hell are you talking about? Like, that doesn't make any sense. And I would be so passionate about it. Like, no, you guys are wrong. Like, this is not what we're supposed to be like. Well, what do you mean we're not supposed to be like that? Right. Realizing, okay, there's an educational piece. Just like you talking about the ratchet straps. You have to, if they don't know, they don't know. They don't know what they don't know, right? Right. right. And I, history of the fire service is important. History of the organization that you're getting in. Why? Why does the union have this? Why does the administration want this? Why is this rigged this way? Why is this at this house? Why is, you know, for us, we don't have an ambulance in town. They're on the outside. Why is it like that? Is it, did somebody wake up one morning and say, hey, let's put them outside and just see what happens? And then we went with it. And if that's the reason, great, tell them. You know, t- tell them about the Hughes stats that, that, you know, we're one of the best fire ground chief officers around. Tell them about them. Tell them about the Mayday group and the complacency and what we learned from it and why we learned from it. Tell them about the history of the Alliance. Why is the Alliance here? What did we do to get the Alliance here? Who headed it up? Why did they head it up? All those things, those are all important. And, I, and I've and i heard guys say that when they're on probation at other places, they are tested on it. Yeah. Like here, here's our, here's our history. You need to know it. If you're gonna be a part of this organization, you're gonna be a part of the whole organization. You're not just gonna be a part of the organization that fights fires and cuts people out of cars and gets medals and all that kind of, all the fun stuff. You're gonna be a part of the organization for the whole organization. And I think, yeah. again, as a, as a whole, we need to do that. Now, who's that fall on? 
Us? Does it fall on the chief? Does it fall on the lieutenants, the battalion chiefs, the senior guys? I think it falls on everybody. I, yeah. I, I really do. And my history, my perception of the history, the things I know are different than the guy that's on the rig with me, whether he's been on longer or been on shorter or whatever. We both have a different knowledge of the history in our organization or other organizations. So, you know, all that stuff is important. And I think it's on every single one of us. And I think we take it for granted. I will tell you that if you do the roll calls in the morning, and I'm, I'm a big proponent of roll calls, I really am. If you do the roll calls in the morning, a lot of times when you do a roll call drill, when you start chewing the fat, whatever the case may be, maybe you get a guy from an overtime shift or a trade, those conversations start to happen. And those remember when stories, the old war stories, there's history built into those war stories. And when the retired guy stops by the firehouse to get his free cup of coffee or to fill up the air in his tires, whatever the case may be, chances are before he leaves, he's going to tell you a story. That story is the history of your department. Well, if you listen to him, you might, if you shut up and listen to him, you might just learn something. So I just got a text message across my screen that I'm almost at two hours. Yeah, we're, we're getting there. See, and I told you I didn't have anything to say and you just keep leading me along. I, I told you that it was going to be easy. It's <laughs> 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 yeah, I, everyone's worried they're not gonna be able to talk enough come on uh, we're yeah, right no, all, all firemen no can't doubt. shut up that's kind of our problem right <laughs> um with history the department's ever changing right the, the department has to change it has to it has to stay fluid it has to stay interesting i know for my organization we like shiny things we like stickers and if chief tanner if you're listening to stickers your stickers usually peel off but um, we like stickers. We like shiny things. Some of us like blue lights. Some of us like red lights. He took a shot. I think I'd take a shot, too. Um, we we need to stay fluid with the times, right? So in our organization, if somebody has an idea, we have a, we have a good history of running with it. And so for me, after the Mayday, for a good amount of time, all that I did was Mayday stuff, and I got Mayday'd out. I literally, I, I didn't want to hear the word Mayday. I didn't want to do the presentation. I didn't want to talk about it. If you'd have had me on a podcast five years ago, I would have said, what are you talking about? What Mayday? Let's talk about the weather. It's raining. I was, you know, too much of a good thing is, is a lot. So I had a dream. I had a vision. And I took my vision to paper, and I wrote up a plan, and I presented it to my fire chief. And my vision was a canine for our organization. And you've probably seen him nudge his nose up here a couple times because I haven't been paying attention to him for 10 minutes. But he has to be in the room with me or he'd sit outside the room and bark. But I went to my chief of the plan and I said, Chief, I want to get a dog. And this is what I want to do with him. And uh, Chief Stott was my battalion chief at the time. And he was on a USAR team. And he was a big shot at the USAR team and said, yeah, we have dogs. Let me get you in touch with the guy and let's see if we can do something with it. So I got all my ducks in a row and I got all my information. And he prepped the fire chief that I was going to come in and talk to him about it. And I came in and said, here's my plan. This is what I want to do. What do you think? And the chief said, yeah, sure, let's run with it. And I was a little surprised that he gave me the ball to run with it. The timing was perfect. And I think he knew that the timing was perfect. And I think some of the other guys, my battalion chief and lieutenant, knew that the timing was perfect too, right? As much as the dog is going to be used for search and rescue, it was also one of those things that I needed too, a little bit of therapy without getting a comfort dog, right? And 
when we talked about the Mayday stuff, that was therapy too. We talked about it so that we could work through it too. It wasn't just for everybody else. And, and so the dog kind of followed suit with that. And so I got my first canine. In fact, he's upstairs laying in my daughter's bed because he sleeps up there now. He's retired um, for the USAR team. And we went to training once a week for a couple hours and we were on Illinois Task Force One. And it was, it was cool. It was the department's first dog. It was different. It was a lot of learning. And as you've seen Vitaly pop up here with a whole bunch of fat jokes and workout jokes, and I can't even keep track of them all. You know, he's always got, he's always got something to say when he's, he's hiding behind his keyboard. Yeah. Um, him and I trained a lot together and we said, we got to do something more with these dogs. Right. And so right about that time, my dog got elbow dysplasia and we had, we were forced into retiring him medically. And I went to the chief and I said, what do you think about letting me run another dog? I know the first one didn't work out so well, but I'm into it. Let me do it. You know, it's not a huge cost and whatever I can do to sweeten the pot. And he said, yeah, go for it. So we ended up getting Thor and we brought him home. Uh, Mike and I went and picked him up in, in uh, Southern Indiana. We picked him up at seven weeks old and his first day on shift was seven weeks in one day. And we hit the ground running with him. And from there, we have now, as um, Leonardo would call it, the elite search and rescue strike team. And so what happened was we got sick of just doing disaster stuff. It, Illinois Task Force One doesn't get deployed very often. And we don't have, believe it or not, a lot of hurricanes in Illinois. I know you look out the window and you think we might have one tonight, but we're probably not going to. Um, and so we wanted to do something more on a local level. And so we started tracking with our dogs, tracking, trailing, building searches, open area searches, in addition to our in, in addition to our task force stuff while that was going on we didn't have anywhere to train disaster dogs so these dogs are supposed to run concrete piles like the dogs from 9 11 in oklahoma city but we didn't have anywhere to do that so we would sit on an open bay floor so i went back to my chief and i said i have a vision and he rolled his eyes and said what is it and i said let's build a collapse pile and right away he said absolutely not we're not building a collapse pile and i said hear me out if we build a collapse pile, we can train our dogs. It can be the house for Illinois, housing for Illinois Task Force One canine. And we can have people from all over the country come in and test it. And it'll, it's going to put us on the map when it comes to the canine world. And he reluctantly said, all right, what do you need? And I said, nothing. I think with a little bit of help from some of the guys, we can do this for almost nothing. So we did. Guys said, hey, they're chipping up roads out here. Let's get them to drop asphalt. Hey, they're tearing down this car deal. Let's get to concrete. North Aurora had a bunch of extra concrete tubes and stuff. So now we're building a collapse pile. We're starting tracking and trailing. And then all of a sudden we said, hey, we bring the drone out and watch our tracking and trailing because we're missing a couple things. And we want to see from the air what it looks like. And I remember saying to the chief, you know, we could be like Batman and Robin here. And it was later that night, our first call came from the Lake Forest Police Department. They called Vitaly and said, we have a missing person. Can you guys come out and help us? And they knew that Lincolnshire had a canine. And so we were excited. I mean, this was awesome. We all tried to figure out how to get there and move crates to cars and get drones. And it was Lincolnshire in West Chicago and, and a couple other guys on the task force. And we showed up there. And when we showed up there, Vitaly had successfully tracked that first person that we got called out for. And so we sat down in a room and we said, are we on to something here? And we said, if we are, we need to buy in from the chiefs. And we went to our chiefs and, and Chief Kruger and Chief Tanner sat down with us and said, 
you two fucking knuckleheads it seems like every other day you're thinking of some some other way and so we started putting the team together and when we started it was the dogs from Illinois Task Force One and it was a couple drones from West Chicago and a couple drones from Lincolnshire and the team has grown to I believe we have nine departments on now we have eight dogs we have 21 drones, five command chiefs, a trailer, a UTV, and we're doing about 45 call-outs a year for searching for missing people. And for whoever follows our team, we did six last week. And Red Center dispatches us, and they do an incredible job for us. And every call-out we went on last week uh, was a successful find for everybody that we got called out for. Segwaying back to the task force a little bit when we, when we dug into more of it, because we didn't know shit about it, we realized that we needed two piles to test. So I went back to the chief and said, remember that pile you let me build? And he said, yeah, I go, well, we have a test coming up in three months. I scheduled a test. And he goes, that's great. I said, there's people from all over the country coming. We got people from New York, California, Florida. And he's like, really? And I said, it's gonna be a big deal. And he goes, that's great. I said, but, but we need something. And he goes, Jesus Christ, Todd, what are you and Mike up to now? And I said, we need a second pile and we need it in six weeks. And he's like, what? And I said, we need a pile. We need it in six weeks. And so between the canine team and Illinois Task Force One, we had guys going out and scouting for concrete, piles of concrete, pieces of concrete from neighborhoods that were getting sidewalks popped up. And, and there was a car dealer in Batavia that was getting torn down. And in six weeks, with probably 45 guys and a dozen pieces of equipment, we built a second pile. And we had our first canine test um in west chicago three years ago this past this in october and we had people from all over the country come and everybody was in awe of what we were able to build and since then in addition to our two collapse files we built an agility course and we just we had a test last year and then we just recertified our illinois dogs this past october again and we've had people from all over the country with incredible feedback on the program and our dogs have responded in Illinois, in Northern Illinois, to 42 different agencies. And we're doing about 45 call-outs a year. And the sky's the limit with this program. And it has really taken off. And it's it's incredible to watch. It's, an, it's even more incredible to be a part of. And the people that are a part of it are the kind of people that you want to be with at the firehouse. They're the kind of people that these calls don't come at one o'clock in the afternoon on a bright sunny day. Yeah. Well, yeah, one last week did, but they're usually two, three, four in the morning. It's usually raining. It sucks. It's cold. It's windy. It's hot. It's humid, whatever it, you know, it's like a fire. It, it doesn't happen on a beautiful sunny day and people show up and chiefs are getting out of beds and, and firemen are leaving firehouses and guys are coming in to cover them and good things are happening. And the team is on the map. And the team's on the map because of the hard work and dedication from everybody on that team. And some people play a little bit more significant role than other people. But every the, the team is what it is because of every single person on the team. And if you don't follow it on Facebook, follow it. It is it is something it is something awesome. With that said, we've been all over the state of Illinois giving dog and drone presentations too, and we've been added to a lot of box cards. Um, all over the state for collapses and tornadoes god willing they ever come in um so like i said it, it really is something to it's a spectacle for sure and some of the guys on the team are a spectacle too yeah i have seen a handful of, uh, of trainings 
and I, I'm blown away by what those dogs can do. It's it's incredible. It really is. It, 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 the dogs is the dogs is a piece, and what I tell everybody when I give the presentations or or when I talk to the police on the scene or whatever is you you're calling the team, and the team the dogs are a big component of the team, but the dogs, the drones, the UTV, the command trailers, the additional personnel to do ground searches or drive around in vehicles. When you call the team, you're calling a team. You're not calling a dog or a drone or a chief or you're calling a team. And so when we get 15 people to show up and there's three dogs and three drone operators and a couple chiefs, and there's a guy in the UTV, all of that together brings our success rate through the roof. And I track every call and I track what we get called for. How long it takes us to get there, what the outcome is. I nerd it up with my Excel spreadsheet. And I will tell you that when every component of the team is there, the likelihood of finding somebody is exponentially increased and we're at about a 72 percent success rate and when i say that i say that of the other percentage that we don't find usually they're picked up or something crazy comes out of them if they're out there we find and our success rate again is is intensified when every component so the dogs are incredible they're fun to watch they're fun to train it's a lot but when the dogs, the drones, the chiefs, the UTVs, the command trailers, the ground personnel, when every piece shows up, yeah. when all the commitment is there, the success is incredible. Yeah, that's it's it's pretty pretty awesome for sure. So, and uh, making fun of the old man, just as he says, an hour forty minutes could not talk, or we didn't talk about Thor. You must have known he was going to say that because we just went right into it. So. Uh, but yeah. Well, you know, of course, everybody likes to give me shit. It's all about the dog. Right? It's all about the dog. It's all about the dog. And and it is a lot about the dog for me, right? Because it, it's like anything else. Like we talked about before, if you pull your rit pack out once a year, that's how good you'll be. If I train my dog once a month, that's how good he'll be. You can't. You have to train constantly. And we train all the time. And, and, uh, come here see if I can get him up to come over here. Somebody wanted to see him. Um, we train all the time. And, and part of the reason we train all the time is because we want to be good. We want to be good at what we do. You know, if you can't say hi. No. Um, so, again, if you haven't seen it, call us up. We'll come out. We'll train in your neck of the woods. We'll train with your fire department. We'll train with your police department. We'll go on your box guards. We'll come out for your missing people. So it really is cool. It's it's an incredible opportunity. Yeah. We're very fortunate. So. Well, with that, I think uh, last call for, for audience questions, but we still got a couple that we're going to go through. Um, so one of the things I do want to kind of circle back to with some of those intro questions that we didn't quite get to was, was – um, who influenced you the most early in your career? And, and I, you've listened, like you said, to a couple episodes. And I and I always like to ask this question because I love to highlight some of those people that really set us on the right path. So, anyone come to mind? Um, there was, and mostly it was the guys from Woodstock, and because that's what I knew when I first started. And there was uh, uh, Joe Fendrick out of Glenview. He 
I remember when I first started, I was scared to death to work for him. God, I hope he's not watching this. I was scared to death to work for him because I was afraid he was going to make me look like an idiot. And I'll never forget, it was a Saturday morning, and he was a lieutenant, and the lieutenants were shift commanders at the time. And he picked up a shift, and he was my shift commander. And I was almost ready to go home sick because I was so scared. I was so nervous. And he came down and said, we're throwing ladders today, kid. And I said, okay, I think you're going to be severely disappointed, but all right. And I remember when he said, can you tie a halyard? And I said, uh, yep. And I've never been a rope guy, but I couldn't tie a knot, so I tied a lot. And he looked at me and said, what are you doing? And I said, I don't know. And I thought for sure, I thought for sure he was just going to light me up. And he said, well, come over here and let me show you. And I looked at him. I said, what? He goes, let me show you. So he showed me. And I said, oh, that's cool. And he goes, and when you carry the ladder, if you do it this way, it's a lot easier on your shoulders. And when you get to be a little bit older, you're going to want to keep those shoulders. And I said, all right. And then we threw another ladder, and we tied another halyard. And then we talked about knowing the bedded sections of your extension ladders. And, and at the end of the day, after an hour went by, I learned more about ladders in that hour with that man than I ever had in any of the academy classes and not putting any of the instructors down. But you know how it is. You got 40 kids in your class. And, and so then I said, I want to work with him again. And I did. And every time I worked with him, I learned something. And he, we actually became pretty good friends. And I learned a lot from him. He, he knew a little bit about everything. And he was very influential in the way that he taught. And there was guys, and we all know those guys that yell and scream at you. I've been that guy before when, you, when you're past the point of breaking. Um, and he was, never, he was never like that. Ron Mortz, uh, he, was, he was a captain in Skokie. He's retired now. He was the guy that that switched out his gear and went through his coat pockets. And I'll never forget um, the night before or the day before I was testing to become an engineer there. You had to run through a drafting scenario and you had to run through a hydrant scenario. It was 10 o'clock at night and I was sitting on the top of the rig looking at the pump panel, trying to memorize everything. And he got up to take a piss or get a cup of coffee or have a cigarette or whatever we did back then. And he said, what are you doing? And I said, I got to take this test. And I don't know if I know shit about this engine and he said we'll pull it out back and let's pump with it and i said it's 10 o'clock at night and he goes so we get fires at night and i grabbed onto him too and he was an absolute wealth of information and i was with him when he remodeled one of the guy's houses and he was a, he was good at building houses he was a good fireman he worked on cars he built props and he was an incredible instructor and those guys I held on to. And one other guy, Rick Johnson, he was a fireman's fireman. And he, was, he owned a, a, a oil change shop in town. And he liked to drink beer and have a good time. And he taught me how to shake dice and how to play roulette and uh, get good at blackjack. And I took a lot of his money sitting at the bar shaking dice. But what he taught me was an important lesson. And that important lesson was how to be a fireman around the firehouse and I may have picked up hands-on stuff from other guys more than I did him but he taught me what it was like to be a fireman and when you called him at two o'clock in the morning because your furnace wouldn't start he was there and when you needed something he was there and he was at the bar with you drinking beer with you and shaking dice with you but at the firehouse when you did something wrong he was a guy that put you in your place and he was a senior guy in the apartment and everybody looked up to him and 
I very much respected him, and we also became pretty good friends. And I learned those things that you don't read in a book, the things that you don't learn on the pump panel. I learned those things from him. And those guys were influential. But I think if you only take things from certain people, you're going to lose out on so much more. And I've, I've been fortunate that I've worked with incredible firemen, some younger than me, some older than me, some with less years on the job and some with more. And I've taken a lot of things from a lot of people over the years. And, and I highlight a, a couple people because they stand out in my mind. But I'll tell you that a lot of the lessons I learned, a lot of the tricks of the trades that I learned were from firemen that went through the academy with me, that got hired on with me, that said, hey, do this with this ladder. It, it's not always the, the big names and the big shots and the guys with the most bugles on their on their collar. Sometimes it's the new kid that goes, how come we don't do this? And you go, shit, I never thought about that, you know? And then, and, and so I think you have to take something from everybody, but those guys were influential. And some of the things they said to me over the years really stuck with me. I love it. Yeah. That's awesome. Uh, what is uh, one mistake that you've made and learned from? Oh, God, one? Just one. <laughs> I think one of the biggest things that I've learned from um, was to take criticism. And I think when you first start taking criticism, nobody likes it. Nobody likes to be criticized. Nobody likes to be told what to do or what they did wrong. And I think one of my biggest mistakes, and I still do it now, if you ask my wife, she'll probably tell you, but... One of my biggest mistakes was not being the guy who would who would take the criticism. And I've learned over the years that, give me the criticism, because I'll learn from it, and I'll be better, and it won't happen again. And I think one of the mistakes, and it, when we probably all make it when we're young, right? We're young, dumb, and well, you know the rest, but I was never the guy that wanted to take the criticism. And I think that if I, if I could go back, which I don't want to, but if I could go back, I would tell myself when I was younger, Take the criticism, just own it, own whatever they tell you and learn from it and be better. And if you can do that at 21, 22, 25, 28, when you get to be 35, 38, 40, it's a lot easier to do. So take it because you know what? It's words. And at the end of the day, if you learn something from it, so be it. You learn something from it. Yeah. Sound advice. Absolutely. Uh, have you ever lost your passion for the fire service? And uh, if you have, what did you do to get it back? And how do you stay passionate? I uh, I think that our careers are roller coasters. And I listen, I've listened to your podcast and I listen to you ask this question. I hear people say, yeah, every 10 years. And I heard somebody say, yeah, that's just a regular Tuesday for me, you know. And I have. I really have. And I... I've lost passion with boredom. I've lost passion with with criticism. And I think the way you get that back is to expand your horizons. And when I've lost it, the way and I have I have mentors. I have guys I look up to. I have guys I talk to just like we all do. Some I work with, some nobody's ever heard of. And and my dad passed away a couple of years ago. And I sit at his grave and I talk to him and I get advice from him. I sit and have a couple of beers and I listen to what he has to say. And he says, kid, get out there and do something about it. 
And I do. And so to get that passion back, I think you, you really have to broaden your horizons. And, and I've lost it with the canine and got it back. And I've lost it with the mayday and got it back. And, and it's, it, it really is boredom, right? Because we do the same shit over and over again with a little bit of change. And, and so when the canine stuff starts to get redundant, I leave. I go out of state. I go to New York and train. I go to Florida and train. I go to, and, and seeing new people and seeing new attitudes breathes a new life into you. And, it, and it's the same thing with firefighting. It's all the same shit over and over again. And then you go to a project mayday or you go to a writ under fire and you meet, you go to another state, you take a class out of state and you hear guys talk and you realize either A, how fortunate you are or, or B, you hear guys that are passionate about it. And I'll tell you a couple of weeks ago, and this probably segues into one of your other questions, but a couple of weeks ago, I, I don't remember what I was mad about. I probably do remember if I thought about it, but I, I reached out to a friend of mine and Alan Stiles, he's the fire chief of the Dalton Fire Department. And I know he follows your page because I've seen him comment. Oh yeah. And it would be who it would be who of you to have him on. Right. That guy eats, sleeps, and shits the fire service. And I sent him a message on Facebook and I said, I need some of your attitude. I and he said, Call me. And I called him and I I called him to ask him one question and I was on the phone with him for three hours. And I weeded my garden while I was on the phone with him. I took my dog for a walk while I was on. I literally did everything I had to do, and I talked to him on the phone. And that guy, if I had half of his passion for the fire service and half of his knowledge and half of his drive, I'd be 100 times the fireman I am. And I have followed, I, I knew him when he worked in Harvard and I worked in Woodstock. And when he took the, the chief's job, I followed him on Facebook and I look at his stuff. And whenever I've needed him, and, and I don't talk to him that often, he's shown up. And he is the epitome of the American fireman. And like I said, it would be who of you, if he's listening, it would be who of you to have him on because talking to him for a couple hours on the phone was that regeneration that I needed to go back to work the next day and say, guys, we got to do X, Y, and Z, and we're good. And one of his things is we are varsity as fuck. Yeah. We are varsity. Yeah. And he has a tattooed on his arm, and that's what he kept telling me when we were talking is we're varsity. We're varsity. And you have the passion. You have to go out and do it. And it takes a guy like that to breathe that little bit of life back into you to bring you back when you start to, when you start to get off course. And what brings us off course? It could be anything. It's slow days at the firehouse it's the bullshit around the breakfast table it's contract negotiations it's the chief did this it's the you know what whatever you know dog training it's the same shit i'm not getting enough reps that the dog didn't make this turn or you know whatever the case may be we could think of a thousand reasons to lose that passion and a lot of times one person and we all have that one person and i see vitaly's comment and he's right because Vitaly gets the brunt of a lot of my shit. I mean, he does. He's that friend that I pick up the phone and call him and say, this is what sucks. On the other side of that, I talk to my cousin on the phone every single day on my way to work. He starts work when I do, so we talk on the phone. He gets the brunt of my shit. And I'll tell you, if it, I, I don't know how everybody's relationship is, but I know that my relationship with my wife she's my best friend and she gets more of it than anybody else and at the end of the day she's usually the one that says think of how fortunate you are think of all the things you have think of all the things you've been able to do think of the things that your departments let you do and that they've supported 
and remember that because there's guys that aren't fortunate. I don't know many guys that have a canine for their department. I'm fortunate. I don't know how many guys have been able to travel around and talk about a shitty call and make changes in people's life. I'm fortunate. I have everything I have because of the job that I have. So it, sometimes it just takes somebody. They don't always have to be a fireman. They can be a significant other. They can be a cousin. They can even be a dead dad sometimes. And I'll tell you, this dog hears more shit than anybody. (laughs) And if this this asshole could talk, I'll tell you what, (laughs) he'd have his own (laughs) podcast. But you have to have those people. You have to have them in your professional life. You have to have them in your personal life. And if you don't, there's a problem. And, And I've always said that when you leave the firehouse at the end of the day, if you don't have those people that aren't firemen, you're not gonna have anything. And when I talk to my cousin and I talk to my wife and I talk to my friends that aren't firemen, and I don't go into great depth of conversation like I could with a fireman about specific things, but they know. Just because I'm having a bad day doesn't mean it was because a hose line was pulled. It's probably a bad day because of some personnel conflict, right? And so that's what drives you away. And it's not always the firemen that that bring you back. Sometimes it's those people and sometimes what brings you back is a break. Sometimes it's a break that brings you back. Sometimes it's somebody saying, take a week off. Let's go on vacation. Let's do this with the kids. Let's do that with the kids. And sometimes that's what you need. So I, I look at I look at the questions, and I think it's great that you sent them out. And when you sent them to me a couple of days ago, and I started looking at them, and I started thinking, well, I'll say this, and I'll say this, and maybe I'll say this, and maybe I'll say this. And, and then, you know, the people who, oh, by the way, Jeff Bacola, if you're looking, I got to name drop him. I told him I was going to have a list of people's names that I had to say while I was up here. But <laughs> so many people play such an important role in what we do. And to sit here and name them all or to name the most important ones would be foolish. There's so many important yeah. people. So I don't know if that was one of your questions or if it was just a question in my head. But uh, Well, I, the question that I, I do go to after, and you're kind of halfway segueing into that, but I know that it's going to be difficult just based on what you said is I, I if you were to basically you get a, a person that knows nothing about the fire service and and you want to put them with somebody that's going to show them everything that we're supposed to represent uh you, you know who would it be and i and i always add the preface of you know either with us or not but you know hey you're going to spend x number of hours with this this person and they're going to show you everything who would you trust with that you know i I thought about this question, and this was one of the questions that really got me because I'd love to name drop. I'd love to say, take Chief Styles because he's he's the epitome of the fire service. Go talk to Hugh Stott because that guy is, is a command chief like you wouldn't believe in. And I know I just name dropped Jeff Bacola, but uh, one probably one of the best fire ground chiefs that I've had a chance to work with. And, and the guys that I used to work with on the tower and the guys I work with today, the, the company that I'm with today is is incredible. But honest to God, I think that if I had to show somebody what the fire service really is, I would show them to myself 10 years ago. I would show them, I would show them the kid that wanted to get on the rig every time it pulled out of the station. I would show them the kid that had the, that had the figurines on his fireplace. I would show them the kid that had the flag in the garage and the fire plates on his car and maybe the blue light on the dash and the kid that carried the pager where he went because that kid I could say kid because I'm 40 now. That kid wanted to be a fireman more than anything in the world. And the day that I got hired in West Chicago, it was like a dream come true. I never thought it's one of those things that you never think is going to happen. And then it does. And I would 
I would challenge somebody when they get in those those slumps to look in the mirror and take a hard look and remember remember why you got here and how you got here and who got you here and remember yourself 10 15 20 years ago maybe for some people watching it was 40 years ago i don't know remember that person and when you say living and dead they're both living and dead that part of you is gone but it's still here and if if you go back to your roots i think you could probably take a hard look in the mirror and and, and learn a lot it's a great answer not that i'm giving out points that's not the show <laughs> it's not who's like anyway it's, but damn true, yeah right? you're right it's i mean it's not like anyone made you sign up to be a firefighter you know it's i remember um when i first met my father-in-law um he's a fireman he was my, actually my fire chief and you know everybody wants to date the fire chief's daughter so i ended up marrying her um i remember he told me one day when i was at work we used to sit on the back of the brush truck and, and smoke cigarettes. That was that was one of my fondest memories of the firehouse was everybody sitting around smoking cigarettes and drinking coffee at 10 o'clock at night after a fire, right? And I remember him saying to me when I was bitching about something, he said, one of the best things about being a fireman is if you don't like, you can always quit and go get another job. And I remember looking at him and go, what? He goes, nobody said you had to be here. Nobody made you come to work today. If you don't like it anymore or you don't want to do it or it's too rough, go do something else. And then you go, well, it wasn't, it's not that bad. Now it's just bitching the bitch. It's not that bad. I'll have another That's cigarette. It's not that bad. Sorry. You know? <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> because a lot, it's not that bad, right? And nobody's making you be here. We all chose to do this, and we keep choosing to do it. And there's benefits, right? There's, there's benefits that keep us here. But other places have good benefits, too, and, and a good salary package and time off and all that other bullshit that – you know, if you really wanted to do something else, you can, people have left before. People will leave again. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So absolutely, some probably should leave, <clears throat> but uh, <laughs> I don't know who. I'm not thinking of anyone. Um, yeah, I can't think of anybody off the top of my head. But <laughs> last last question: best part of the job? What's the best part of the job? The best part of the job is you create your future. It, I I really believe that that if you want to do something, whatever it is. You can do it. If you want to be a canine handler and be on Illinois Task Force One and go out and find missing people, you can do it. If you want to become a fire chief or a battalion chief or a lieutenant, excuse me, if it means that much to you, you can do it. Study and do it. If if you want to do something, figure out a way to do it. The fire service is an open book. You, you can literally do whatever you want as long as you put your mind to it. So. The best part of the job is everything's different every day. It's the same shit, but it's always different. And you can do whatever you want. You just have to put your mind to it. And again, I'm I'm a perfect example of that. I've been so fortunate, again, to give the Mayday classes, to presentations, to give the dog and drone presentations. And, and I'm living proof that if you want something, if you try hard enough, you can get it. And I And that's the best part of this job is if you don't like where you're at today, you can change it tomorrow, and you can make it better. Well, on that note, <laughs> I love it. Eat that next person. <laughs> yeah, somebody's got to pick up after that. Uh, yeah, that's going to make 23 episodes. We got a little, little bit of momentum going over here, and uh, I appreciate Todd you coming on. Awesome, really nice to chat with you and talk. Uh, 
if anyone wanted to get a hold of you, you know, for information on the canines and the dogs and drones or your Mayday class, uh, how could they how could they get a hold of you? Um, I, I don't I could probably throw can I chat on this thing, too? Um, yeah, if you want to throw it in the in the Facebook chat. Uh, obviously, if people are listening to it, they're not going to see it, but we'll just read it off or something. That's fine. No, but uh, my email address is on there. It's tbasegio, B-A-S-E-G-G-I-O, at wegofpd.org. And if you need to, the canine and drone team is uh, search and rescue strike team. It's on Facebook and Instagram. Uh, Mike Vitale and myself run that page. So if you send a message, um, one of us will get it. Um, I put my email address up there. If you're lucky enough, I'll give you my cell phone. I'd show up. I give it to everybody. I always, it's on my business card. I put my cell phone on. Everybody's like, you don't want to do that. And I said, well, if I don't recognize the number, I just don't answer it anyway. Yeah, so right. I mean, what do I care? But <laughs> yeah, standard operating procedure. But um, I've had, um, I've had a lot of people reach out to come do that Mayday presentation. Like I said, it's been six years. We, I've done it 56 times. I've done it to over 1,200 firemen and fire chiefs. If you want, I'll come out to your organization. And I will tell you, I've gotten phone calls after guys have had close calls, shitty calls, because they need somebody to talk to and reaching out to the, the big organizations, the peer supports and all that is a little overwhelming. I'm, I'm open to talk. If you need something, I'm open to talk. I, I find great value in having a resource at your fingertips that that's personal and that person to talk to. And I've had Again, I've had people call me. I've had people message me. Um, I'm always here if you need something. And if I got to come to you, I'll come to you. If you want to come to me, there's beer in my fridge. There's coffee in the pot. If you want to come by my firehouse, there might be some beer there somewhere. Um, now there's co- there's always coffee on. Don't don't ever don't anybody think that they're too big for the problem that they're having, no matter how big or how small it is. And, and I'll be honest with you, I've had people come to me with their puppies and say, how do I get my dog to do this? I've had people call me after they had a mayday or they had a close call. And we've talked about that. So I, I'm on all ends of the spectrum. I'd like to think that I'm a halfway decent conversationalist. I can pretty much talk about anything for as long as possible as, as for, the, for as two, the yeah. shows. <laughs> I won't beat lean heart. Um, sorry, but, uh, if you, if you need something, like I said, reach out to me. And if somebody reaches out to you, feel free to give them my cell yep. phone number. Um, I'm always available, 24-7, 365. I'm, I'm here for you if you need it. Presentation, chat, find a missing person, smash some Mayday stuff, whatever you want to do. I'm, I'm fair game for anything. Awesome. Well, thanks again. Appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank, thanks for having me. It's been fun. Yeah, yeah. It's a good time. Uh, see you guys around uh, on the next one. Uh, I got one coming up next week. Uh, stay tuned. I'm going to put it out there. Uh, somebody from out of state again. So uh, a little bit different look. So, uh, yeah, take care. Have a nice evening. Bye. Well, you hang out. <laughs> Thank you for listening. Check us out on outlierfirefighters.com, Facebook, Instagram, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. Remember, excellence may be a rarity, but you are not alone. 